This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Ideal by Stanley G. Weinbaum. It's read by Greg Marguerite for LibriVox. It runs 47 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite The Ideal by Stanley G. Weinbaum This, said the Franciscan, is my automaton, who at the proper time will speak, answer whatsoever question I may ask, and reveal all secret knowledge to me. He smiled as he laid his hand affectionately on the iron skull that topped the pedestal. The youth gazed open-mouthed, first at the head and then at the friar. "'But it's iron,' he whispered. "'The head is iron, good father.' "'Iron without, skill within, my son,' said Roger Bacon. "'It will speak at the proper time and in its own manner, for so have I made it. "'A clever man can twist the devil's arts to God's ends, thereby cheating the fiend. Psst, "'There sounds vespers, plenta gratia ave vergo.' "'But it did not speak. Long hours, long weeks.' The doctor Mirabilis watched his creation, but iron lips were silent and the iron eyes were dull, and no voice but the great man's own sounded in his monkish cell, nor was there ever an answer to all the questions that he asked, until one day when he sat surveying his work, composing a letter to Dun Scotus in distant Cologne. One day. Time is, said the image and smiled benignly. The friar looked up. Time is indeed, he echoed. Time it is that you give utterance, and to some assertion less obvious than time is. For of course time is, else there were nothing at all without time. Time was, rumbled the image, still smiling, but sternly at the statue of Draco. Indeed time was, said the monk. Time was, is, and will be, for time is that medium in which events occur. Matter exists in space. But events? The image smiled no longer. Time is past. It roared in tones deep as the cathedral bell outside, and burst into ten thousand pieces. There, said old Haskell van Manderpoots, shutting the book, is my classical authority in this experiment. The story, overlaid as it is with medieval myth and legend, proves that Roger Bacon himself attempted the experiment, and failed. He shook a long finger at me. Yet do not get the impression, Dixon, that Friar Bacon was not a great man. He was. Extremely great. In fact, he lighted the torch that his namesake Francis Bacon took up four centuries later, and that now Van Menderputz rekindles. I stared in silence. Indeed, resumed the professor, Roger Bacon might almost be called a thirteenth-century Van Menderputz or Van Manderpoots, a twenty-first-century Roger Bacon, his opus magus, opus minus, and opus tertium. What, I interrupted impatiently, has all this to do with that? I indicated the clumsy metal robot standing in the corner of the laboratory. Don't interrupt, snapped Van Manderpoots. I'll... At this point I fell out of my chair. The mass of metal had ejaculated something like a grasp, and had lunged a single pace forward towards the window, arms upraised. 
What the devil, I sputtered, as the thing dropped its arms and returned stolidly to its place. A car must have passed in the alley, said Van Manderpootz indifferently. Now, as I was saying, Roger Bacon, I ceased to listen. When Van Manderpootz is determined to finish a statement, interruptions are worse than futile. As an ex-student of his, I know. So I permitted my thoughts to drift to certain personal problems of my own, particularly Tips Alva, who was the most pressing problem at the moment. Yes, I mean Tips Alva, the vision dancer, the little blonde imp who entertains on the Yerba Mate hour for that Brazilian company. Chorus girls, dancers, and television stars are a weakness of mine. Maybe it indicates that there's a latent artistic soul in me. Maybe. I'm Dixon Wells. You know, scion of the N.J. Wells Corporation. Engineers extraordinary. I'm supposed to be an engineer myself. I say supposed because in the seven years since my graduation, my father hasn't given me much opportunity to prove it. He has a strong sense of value of time, and I'm cursed with the unenviable quality of being late to anything and for everything. He even asserts that the occasional designs I submit are late Jacobean, but that isn't fair. They're post-Romanesque. Old N.J. also objects to my penchant for ladies of the stage and vision screens and periodically threatens to cut my allowance, though that's supposed to be a salary. It's inconvenient to be so dependent, and sometimes I regret that unfortunate market crash of 2009 that wiped out my own money, although it did keep me from marrying Whimsy White, and Van Manderpootz, through his subjunctivisor, succeeded in proving that that would have been a catastrophe, but it turned out nearly as much of a disaster anyway, as far as my feelings were concerned. It took me months to forget Joanna Caldwell and her silvery eyes, just another instance when I was a little late. Van Manderpootz himself is my old physics professor, head of the Department of Newer Physics at NYU, and a genius, but a bit eccentric. Judge for yourself. And that's the thesis, he said, suddenly interrupting my thoughts. Eh? Oh, of course. But what's that grinning robot got to do with it? He purpled. I've just told you, he roared. Idiot! Imbecile! To dream while Van Manderpootz talks! Get out! Get out! I got. It was late anyway, so late that I overslept more than usual in the morning and suffered more than the usual lecture on promptness from my father at the office. Van Manderpootz had forgotten his anger by the next time I dropped by for an evening. The robot still stood in the corner near the window, and I lost no time asking its purpose. It's just a toy I had some of the students construct, he explained. There's a screen of photoelectric cells behind the right eye so connected that when a certain pattern is thrown on them it activates the mechanism. The thing's plugged into the light circuit, but it really ought to run on gasoline. Why? Well, the pattern it's set for is the shape of an automobile. See here. He picked up a card from his desk and cut in the outlines of a streamlined car like those of that year. Since only one eye is used, he continued, the thing can't tell the difference between a full-sized vehicle at a distance and this small outline nearby. It has no sense of perspective. He held the bit of cardboard before the eye of the mechanism. Instantly came its roar, a grasp, and it leapt forward a single pace, arms upraised. Van Manderpootz withdrew the card, and again the thing relapsed stolidly into its place. What the devil, I exclaimed, what's it for? Does Van Manderpootz ever do work without reason back of it? I use it as a demonstration in my seminar. To demonstrate what? The power of reason, said Van Manderpootz solemnly. How, and why ought it to work on gasoline instead of electric power? 
One question at a time, Dixon. You have missed the grandeur of Van Manderputz's concept. See here. This creature, imperfect as it is, represents the predatory machine. It is the mechanical parallel of the tiger, lurking in its jungle to leap on living prey. This monster's jungle is the city. Its prey is the unwary machine that follows the trails called streets. Understand? No. Well, picture this automaton, not as it is, but as Van Menderputz could make it if he wished. It lurks gigantic in the shadows of buildings. It creeps stealthily through the dark alleys. It skulks on deserted streets, with its gasoline engine purring quietly. Then an unsuspecting automobile flashes its image on the screen behind its eyes. It leaps. It seizes its prey, swinging it in steel arms to its steel jaws. Through the metal throat of its victim crash steel teeth. The blood of its prey, the gasoline, that is, is drained into its stomach, or its gas tank, with renewed strength, it flings away the husk and prowls on to seek other prey. It is the machine carnivore, the tiger of mechanics. I suppose I stared dumbly. It occurred to me suddenly that the brain of the great Van Manderpoots was cracking. What the— I gasped. That, he said blandly, is but a concept. I have many other uses for the toy. I can prove anything with it, anything I wish. You can. Then prove something. Name your proposition, Dixon. I hesitated nonplussed. Come, he said impatiently. Look here. I will prove that anarchy is the ideal government, or that heaven and hell are the same place, or that— Prove that, I said, about heaven and hell. Easily. First we will endow my robot with intelligence. I add a mechanical memory by means of the old Cushman delayed valve. I add a mathematical sense with any of the calculating machines. I give it a voice and a vocabulary with the magnetic impulse wire phonograph. Now the point I make is this. Granted an intelligent machine, does it not follow that every other machine constructed like it must have the identical qualities? Would not each robot, given the same insides, have exactly the same character? No, I snapped. Human beings can't make two machines exactly alike. There'd be tiny differences. One would react quicker than the other, or one would prefer fox air splitters as prey, while others reacted more vigorously to carnicars. In other words, they'd have individuality. I grinned in triumph. My point exactly, observed Van Manderpoots. You admit, then, that this individuality is the result of imperfect workmanship. If our means of manufacture were perfect, all robots would be identical, and this individuality would not exist. Is that true? I suppose so. Then I argue that our own individuality is due to our falling short of perfection. All of us, even Van Menderputz, are individuals only because we are not perfect. Were we perfect, each of us would be exactly like everyone else. True? Uh, yes. But heaven, by definition, is a place where all is perfect. Therefore, in heaven, everybody is exactly like everybody else, and therefore, everybody is thoroughly and completely bored. There is no torture like boredom, Dixon. And, well, have I proved my point? I was floored. But about anarchy, then, I stammered. Simple. Very simple for Van Manderpoots. See here. With a perfect nation, that is one whose individuals are all exactly alike, which I have just proven to constitute perfection. With a perfect nation, I repeat, laws and governments are utterly superfluous. If everybody reacts to stimuli in the same way, laws are quite useless, obviously. 
If, for instance, a certain event occurred that might lead to a declaration of war, why, everybody in such a nation would vote for war at the same instant. Therefore, government is unnecessary, and therefore anarchy is the ideal government, since it is the proper government for a perfect race. He paused. I shall now prove that anarchy is not the ideal government. Never mind, I begged. Who am I to argue with Van Manderputz? But is that the whole purpose of this dizzy robot, just a basis for logic? The mechanism replied with its usual rasp as it leapt toward some vagrant car beyond the window. Isn't that enough? growled Van Manderputz. However, his voice dropped. I have even a greater destiny in mind, my boy. Van Manderputz has solved the riddle of the universe. He paused impressively. Well, why don't you say something? Uh, I gasped. It's, uh, marvelous. Not for Van Manderputz, he said modestly. But what is it? Eh? Oh, he frowned. Well, I'll tell you, Dixon. You won't understand, but I'll tell you. He coughed. As far back as the early twentieth century, he resumed, Einstein proved that energy is particular. Matter is also particular. And now Van Manderputz adds that space and time are discrete. He glared at me. Energy and matter are particular, I murmured, and space and time are discrete. How very moral of them! Imbecile, he blazed, to pun on the words of Van Manderputz. You know very well that I mean particular and discrete in the physical sense. Matter is composed of particles, therefore it is particular. The particles of matter are called electrons, protons, and neutrons, and those of energy, quanta. I now add two others. The particles of space, I call spatians and those of time, chronons. And what in the devil, I asked, are particles of space and time? Just what I said, snapped Van Manderputz, exactly as the particles of matter are the smallest pieces of matter that can exist, just as there is no such thing as half an electron, or for that matter half a quantum, so the chronon is the smallest possible fragment of time, and the spatian the smallest possible bit of space. Neither time nor space is continuous. Each is composed of these infinitely tiny fragments. Well, how long is a chronon in time, and how big is a spatian in space? Van Menderputz has even measured that. A chronon is the length of time it takes one quantum of energy to push one electron from one electronic orbit to the next. There can obviously be no shorter interval of time, since an electron is the smallest unit of matter, and the quantum the smallest unit of energy and a spatian is the exact volume of a proton, since nothing smaller exists. That is obviously the smallest unit of space. Well, look here, I argued, then, what's in between these particles of space and time? If time moves, as you say, in jerks of one chronon each, what's between the jerks? Ah, said the great Van Manderputz, now we come to the heart of the matter. In between the particles of space and time must obviously be something that is neither space, time, matter, nor energy. A hundred years ago, Shapley anticipated Van Manderputz in a vague way when he announced his cosmoplasma, the great underlying matrix in which time and space in the universe are embedded. Now Van Manderputz announces the ultimate unit, the universal particle, the focus in which matter, energy, time, and space meet the unit from which electrons, protons, neutrons, quanta, spatians, and chronons are all constructed. The riddle of the universe is solved by what I have chosen to name the Cosmon. His blue eyes bored into me. Magnificent, I said feebly, knowing that some such word was expected. But 
what good is it? What good is it, he roared. It provides, or will provide once I work out a few details, the means of turning energy into time, or space into matter, or time into space, or... He sputtered into silence. Fool, he muttered, to think that you studied under the tutelage of Van Manderputz. I, I blush. I actually blush. One couldn't have told if he were blushing. His face was always rubicund enough. Colossal, I said hastily. What a mind! That mollified him. But that's not all, he proceeded. Van Manderputz never stops short of perfection. I now announce the unit particle of thought. The Psychon. This was a little too much. I simply stared. Well, may you be dumbfounded, said Van Manderputz. I presume you are aware, by hearsay at least, of the existence of thought. The Psychon, the unit of thought, is one electron plus one proton, which are bound so as to form one neutron embedded in one cosmon, occupying a volume of one spacion, driven by one quantum for a period of one chronon. Very obvious. Very simple. Oh, very, I echoed. Even I can see that equals one psychon. He beamed. Excellent. Excellent. And what, I asked, will you do with the psychons? Ah, he rumbled. Now we go even past the heart of the matter and return to Isaac here. He jammed a thumb toward the robot. Here I will create Roger Bacon's mechanical head. In the skull of this clumsy creature will rest such intelligence as not even Van Manderputz, uh, I should say, as only Van Manderputz can conceive. It remains merely to construct my idealizator. Your idealizator? Of course. Have I not just proven that thoughts are as real as matter, energy, time, or space? Have I not just demonstrated that one can be transformed through the cosmon into any other? My idealizator is the means of transforming psychons to quanta, just as, for instance, a Crookes tube or X-ray tube transforms matter to electrons. I will make your thoughts visible, and not your thoughts as they are in that dumb brain of yours, but in ideal form. Do you see? The psychons of your mind are the same as those from any other mind, just as all electrons are identical, whether from gold or iron. Yes, your psychons, his voice quavered, are identical with those from the mind of Van Manderputz. He paused, shaken. Actually, I gasped. Actually. Fewer in number, of course, but identical. Therefore, my idealizator shows your thought released from the impress of your personality. It shows it ideal. Well, I was late to the office again. A week later, I thought of Van Manderputz. Tips was on tour somewhere, and I didn't dare take anyone else out because I'd tried it once before and she'd heard about it. So with nothing to do, I finally dropped around to the professor's quarter, found him missing, and eventually located him in his laboratory at the physics building. He was puttering around the table that had once held that damned subjunctivizer of his, but now it supported an indescribable mess of tubes and tangled wires, and as its most striking feature, a circular plain mirror etched with a grating of delicately scratched lines. "'Good evening, Dixon,' he rumbled. I echoed his greeting. "'What's that?' I asked. "'My idealizator. A rough model, much too clumsy to fit into Isaac's iron skull. I'm just finishing it to try it out.' He turned glittering blue eyes on me. How fortunate that you're here. It will save the world a terrible risk. A risk? Yes. It is obvious that too long an exposure to the device will extract too many psychons and leave the subject's mind in a sort of moronic condition. I was about to accept the risk, but I see now that it would be woefully unfair to the world to endanger the mind of Van Manderputz. But you are at hand. 
and we'll do very well. Oh, no, I won't. Come, come, he said, frowning. The danger is negligible. In fact, I doubt whether the device will be able to extract any psychons from your mind. At any rate, you will be perfectly safe for a period of at least half an hour. I, with a vastly more productive mind, could doubtless stand the strain indefinitely, but my responsibility to the world is too great to chance it until I have tested the machine on someone else. You should be proud of the honor. Well, I'm not. But my protest was feeble, and, after all, despite his overbearing mannerisms, I knew Van Manderpootz liked me, and I was positive he would not have exposed me to any real danger. In the end I found myself seated before the table facing the etched mirror. Put your face against the barrel, said Van Manderpootz, indicating a stovepipe-like tube. That's merely to cut off extraneous sights, so that you can see only the mirror. Go ahead, I tell you, it's no more than the barrel of a telescope or microscope. I complied. Now what? I asked. What do you see? My own face in the mirror. Of course. Now I start the reflector rotating. There was a faint whir, and the mirror was spinning smoothly, still with only a slightly blurred image of myself. Listen now, continued Van Manderpootz, here is what you are to do. You will think of a generic noun, house, for instance. If you think of house, you will see not an individual house, but your ideal house, the house of all your dreams and desires. If you think of a horse, you will see what your mind conceives as the perfect horse, such a horse as dreams and longing create. Do you understand? Have you chosen a topic? Yes. After all, I was only twenty-eight. The noun I had chosen was girl. Good, said the professor. I turn on the current. There was a blue radiance behind the mirror. My own face still stared back at me from the spinning surface, but something was forming behind it, building up, growing. I blinked. When I focused my eyes again, it was... she was... there. Lord, I can't begin to describe her. I don't even know if I saw her clearly the first time. It was like looking into another world and seeing the embodiment of all longings, dreams, aspirations, and ideals. It was so poignant a sensation that it crossed the borderline into pain. It was, well, exquisite torture or agonized delight. It was at once unbearable and irresistible. But I gazed. I had to. There was a haunting familiarity about the impossibly beautiful features. I had seen the face, somewhere, sometime. In dreams? No. I realized suddenly what was the source of that familiarity. This was no living woman, but a synthesis. Her nose was the tiny, impudent one of Whimsy White at her loveliest moment. Her lips were the perfect bow of Tip's Alva. Her silvery eyes and dusky velvet hair were those of Joan Caldwell. But the aggregate, the sum total, the face in the mirror, that was none of these. It, it was a face impossibly, incredibly, outrageously beautiful. Only her face and throat were visible, and the features were cool, expressionless, as still as a carving. I wondered suddenly if she could smile, and with the thought she did. If she had been beautiful before, now her beauty flamed to such a pitch that it was, well, insolent. It was an affront to be so lovely. It was insulting. I felt a wild surge of anger that the image before me should flaunt such beauty and yet be non-existent. It was deception, cheating, fraud, and a promise that could never be fulfilled. Anger died in the depths of that fascination. I wondered what the rest of her was like, and instantly she moved gracefully back until her full figure was visible. 
I must be a prude at heart, because she wasn't wearing the usual cuirass and shorts of that year, but an iridescent four-paneled costume that all but concealed her dainty knees. But her form was slim and erect as a column of cigarette smoke in still air, and I knew that she could dance like a fragment of mist on water. And with that thought, she did move dropping in a low curtsy and looking up with the faintest possible flush, crimsoning the curve of her throat. Yes, I must be a prude at heart. Despite Tip's Alva and Whimsy White and the rest, my ideal was modest. It was unbelievable that the mirror was simply giving back my thoughts. She seemed as real as myself, and, after all, I guess she was as real as myself, no more, no less, because she was part of my own mind. And at this point I realized that Van Manderpoots was shaking me and bellowing, Your time's up! Come out of it! Your half-hour's up! He must have switched off the current. The image faded, and I took my face from the tube, dropping it on my arms. Oh, I groaned. How do you feel? he snapped. Feel? All right, physically. I looked up. Concern flickered in his blue eyes. What's the cube root of 4,913? he cracked sharply. I've always been quick at figures. It's, uh... Seventeen, I returned dully. Why the devil? You're all right mentally, he announced. Now, why were you sitting there like a dummy for half an hour? My idealizator must have worked, as is only natural for a Van Manderpoot's creation. But what were you thinking of? I thought, I thought of girl, I groaned. He snorted. Ha! You would, you idiot. House or horse wasn't good enough. You had to pick something with emotional connotations. Well, you can start right in forgetting her, because she doesn't exist. I couldn't give up hope as easily as that. But can't you, can't you... I didn't even know what I meant to ask. Van Manderpoots, he announced, is a mathematician, not a magician. Do you expect me to materialize an ideal for you? When I had no reply but a groan, he continued. Now I think it's safe enough to try the device myself. I shall take, let's see, the thought man. I shall see what the Superman looks like, since the ideal of Van Manderpoots can be nothing less than Superman. He seated himself. Turn that switch, he said. Now! I did. The tubes glowed into a low blue light. I watched dully, disinterestingly. Nothing held any attraction for me after that image of the ideal. Huh, said Van Manderpoots suddenly. Turn it on, I say. I see nothing but my own reflection. I stared, then burst into a hollow laugh. The mirror was spinning. The banks of tubes were glowing. The device was operating. Van Manderpoots raised his face, a little redder than usual. I laughed half hysterically. After all, he said huffily, one might have a lower ideal of man than Van Manderpoots. I see nothing nearly so humorous as your situation. The laughter died. I went miserably home, spent half the remainder of the night in morose contemplation, smoked nearly two packs of cigarettes, and didn't get into the office at all the next day. Tips Alva got back to town for a weekend broadcast, but I didn't even bother to see her. Just phoned her and told her I was sick. I guess my face lent credibility to the story, for she was dully sympathetic, and her face in the phone screen was quite anxious. Even at that, I couldn't keep my eyes away from her lips, because, except for a bit too lustrous makeup, they were the lips of the ideal. But they weren't enough. They just weren't enough. Old N.J. began to worry again. I couldn't sleep late of mornings any more, and after missing that one day, I kept getting down earlier and earlier until one morning I was only ten minutes late. He called me in at once. Look here, Dixon, he said. Have you been to a doctor recently? I'm not sick, I said listlessly. 
Then for heaven's sake marry the girl. I don't care what chorus she kicks in. Marry her and act like a human being again. I can't. Oh, she's already married, eh? Well, I couldn't tell him she didn't exist. I couldn't say I was in love with a vision, a dream, an ideal. He thought I was a little crazy anyway. So I just muttered, yeah, and didn't argue when he said gruffly, then you'll get over it. Take a vacation. Take two vacations. You might as well for all the good you are around here. I didn't leave New York. I lacked the energy. I just mooned around the city for a while, avoiding my friends and dreaming of the impossible beauty of the face in the mirror. And by and by, the longing to see that vision of perfection once more began to become overpowering. I don't suppose anyone except me can understand the lore of that memory. The face, you see, had been my ideal, my concept of perfection. One sees beautiful women here and there in the world, one falls in love, but always, no matter how great their beauty or how deep one's love, they fall short in some degree of the secret vision of the ideal. But not the mirrored face. She was my ideal, and therefore, whatever imperfections she might have had in the minds of others, in my eyes, she had none. None that is, save for the terrible one of being only an ideal and therefore unattainable. But that is a fault inherent in all perfection. It was a matter of days before I yielded. Common sense told me it was futile, but foolhardy, to gaze again on the vision of perfect desirability. I fought against the hunger, but I fought hopelessly, and was not at all surprised to find myself one evening rapping on Van Manderpootz's door in the University Club. He wasn't there. I'd been hoping he wouldn't be, since it gave me an excuse to seek him in his laboratory in the physics building, to which I would have dragged him anyway. There I found him writing some sort of notations on the table that held the idealizator. Hello, Dixon, he said. Did it ever occur to you that the ideal university cannot exist? Naturally, not since it must be composed of perfect students and perfect educators, in which case the former could have nothing to learn, and the latter, therefore, nothing to teach. What interest had I in the perfect university and its inability to exist? My whole being was desolate over the non-existence of another ideal. Professor, I said tensely, may I use that, that thing of yours again? I want to, uh, see something. My voice must have disclosed the situation, for Van Manderpootz looked up sharply. So, he snapped, so you disregard my advice. Forget her, I said. Forget her, because she doesn't exist. But I can't. Once more, Professor, only once more. He shrugged. His blue metallic eyes were a little softer than usual. After all, for some inconceivable reason, he likes me. Well, Dixon, he said, you're of age and supposed to be of mature intelligence. I tell you that this is a very stupid request, and Van Manderpootz always knows what he's talking about. If you want to stupefy yourself with the opium of impossible dreams, go ahead. This is the last chance you'll have, for tomorrow the idealizator of Van Manderpootz goes into the bacon head of Isaac there. I shall shift the oscillators so that the psychons, instead of becoming light quanta, emerge as an electron flow, a current which will actuate Isaac's vocal apparatus and come out as speech. He paused musingly. Van Menderpootz will hear the voice of the ideal. Of course, Isaac can return only what psychons he receives from the brain of the operator, but just as the image in the mirror, the thoughts will have lost their human impress, and the words will be those of an ideal. He perceived that I wasn't listening, I suppose. Go ahead, imbecile, he grunted. I did. The glory that I hungered after flamed slowly into being, incredible in loveliness and somehow unbelievably even more beautiful than on that other occasion. 
I know why now. Long afterwards, Van Manderpoots explained that the very fact that I had seen an ideal once before had altered my ideal, raised it to a higher level. With that face among my memories, my concept of perfection was different than it had been. So I gazed and hungered. Readily and instantly the being in the mirror responded to my thoughts with smile and movement. When I thought of love, her eyes blazed with such tenderness that it seemed as if I, I, Dixon Wells, were part of those pairs who had made the great romances of the world. Eloise and Abelard, Tristram and Isolde, Ocassin and Nicolette. It was like the thrust of a dagger to feel Van Manderpoots shaking me, to hear his gruff voice calling, Out of it! Out of it! Time's up! I groaned and dropped my face on my hands. The professor had been right, of course. This insane repetition had only intensified an unfulfillable longing and had made a bad mess ten times as bad. Then I heard him muttering behind me. Strange, he murmured. In fact, fantastic. Oedipus. Oedipus of the magazine covers and billboards. I looked dully around. He was standing behind me, squinting, apparently into the spinning mirror behind the end of the black tube. Huh? I grunted wearily. That face, he said, very queer. You must have seen her features on a hundred magazines, on a thousand billboards, on countless vision broadcasts. The Oedipus complex, in a curious form. Eh? You could see her? Of course, he grunted. Didn't I say a dozen times that the psychons are transmuted to perfectly ordinary quanta of visible light? If you could see her, why not I? But what about billboards and all? That face, said the professor slowly, is somewhat idealized, of course, and certain details are wrong. Her eyes aren't that pallid silver blue you imagined. They're green, sea green, emerald colored. What the devil, I asked hoarsely, are you talking about? About the face in the mirror. It happens to be, Dixon, a close approximation of the features of Delisle d'Agrion, the dragonfly. You mean she's real? She exists? She lives? She... Wait a moment, Dixon. She's real enough, but in accordance with your habit, you're a little late. About twenty-five years too late, I should say. She must now be somewhere in the fifties. Let's see, fifty-three, I think. But during your very early childhood, you must have seen her face pictured everywhere. Delisle d'Agrion, the dragonfly. I could only gulp. That blow was devastating. You see, continued Van Manderpoots, one's ideals are implanted very early. That's why you continually fall in love with girls who possess one or another feature that reminds you of her. Her hair, her nose, her mouth, her eyes. Very simple, but rather curious. Curious, I blazed. Curious, you say. Every time I look into one of your damned contraptions, I find myself in love with a myth. A girl who's dead, or married, or unreal, or turned into an old woman. Curious, eh? Damned funny, isn't it? Just a moment, said the professor placidly. It happens, Dixon, that she has a daughter. What's more, Denise resembles her mother. And what's still more, she's arriving in New York next week to study American letters at the university here. She writes, you see. That was too much for immediate comprehension. How, how do you know? I gasped. It was one of the few times I've seen the colossal blandness of Van Manderpoots ruffled. He reddened a trifle and said slowly, it also happens, Dixon, that many years ago in Amsterdam, Haskell van Manderputz and Lyle de Agrion were very friendly, more than friendly, I might say, but for the fact that two such powerful personalities as the Dragonfly and van Manderputz were always at odds, he frowned. I was almost her second husband. She had seven. I believe Denise is the daughter of her third. 
Why, why is she coming here? Because, he said with dignity, Van Manderpootz is here, and I am still a friend of Delisle. He turned and bent over the complex device on the table. Hand me that wrench, he ordered. Tonight I dismantle this, and tomorrow start reconstructing it for Isaac's head. But when, the following week, I rushed eagerly back to Van Manderpootz's laboratory, the idealizator was still in place. The professor greeted me with a humorous twist to what was visible of his bearded mouth. Yes, it's still here, he said, gesturing at the device. I've decided to build an entirely new one for Isaac, and besides, this one has afforded me considerable amusement. Furthermore, in the words of Oscar Wilde, who am I to tamper with a work of genius? After all, the mechanism is the product of the great Van Manderpootz. He was deliberately tantalizing me. He knew that I hadn't come to hear him discourse on Isaac, or even on the incomparable Van Manderpootz. Then he smiled and softened, and turned to the little inner office adjacent to the room where Isaac stood in metal austerity. Denise, he called, come here. I don't know exactly what I expected, but I do know that the breath left me as the girl entered. She wasn't exactly my image of the ideal, of course. She was perhaps the merest trifle slimmer, and her eyes, well, they must have been much like those of Lyle d'Agrion, for they were the clearest emerald I've ever seen. They were impudently direct eyes, and I could imagine why Van Manderpootz and the dragonfly might have been forever quarreling. That was easy to imagine, looking into the eyes of the dragonfly's daughter. Nor was Denise apparently quite as femininely modest as my image of perfection. She wore the extremely unconcealing costume of the day, which covered, I suppose, about as much of her as one of the one-piece swimsuits of the middle years of the twentieth century. She gave an impression not so much of fleeting grace as to litheness and supple strength, an air of independence, frankness, and, I say it again, impudence. Well, she said coolly as Van Manderpootz presented me, so you're the scion of the N.J. Wells Corporation. Every now and then your escapades enliven the Paris Sunday supplements. Wasn't it you who snared a million dollars in the market so you could ask Whimsy White? I flushed. That was greatly exaggerated, I said hastily, and anyway, I lost it before we, uh, before I... Not before you made somewhat of a fool of yourself, I believe, she finished sweetly. Well, that's the sort she was. If she hadn't been so infernally lovely, if she hadn't looked so much like the face in the mirror, I'd have flared up, said, pleased to have met you, and never have seen her again. But I couldn't get angry, not when she had the dusky hair, the perfect lips, the saucy nose of the being who, to me, was the ideal. So I did see her again, and several times again. In fact, I suppose I occupied most of her time between the few literary courses she was taking. And little by little I began to see that in other respects besides the physical she was not so far from my ideal. Beneath her impudence was honesty and frankness, and, despite herself, sweetness. So that, even allowing for the head start I'd had, I fell in love pretty hastily. And what's more, I knew she was beginning to reciprocate. That was the situation when I called for her one noon and took her over to Van Manderpootz's laboratory. We were to lunch with him at the university club, but we found him occupied in directing some experiment in the big laboratory beyond his personal one, untangling some sort of mess that his staff had blundered into. So Denise and I wandered back into the smaller room, perfectly content to be alone together. I simply couldn't feel hungry in her presence. Just talking to her was enough of a substitute for food. I'm going to be a good writer, she was saying musingly. Some day, Dick, I'm going to be famous. Well, everyone knows how correct that prediction was. I agreed with her instantly. She smiled. 
You're nice, Dick. She said, Very nice. Very? Very, she said emphatically. Then her green eyes strayed over to the table that held the idealizator. What crack-brained contraption of Uncle Haskell's is that? she asked. I explained rather inaccurately. I'm afraid, but no ordinary engineer can follow the ramifications of a Van Manderpoot's conception. Nevertheless, Denise caught the gist of it, and her eyes glowed emerald fire. It's fascinating, she exclaimed. She rose and moved over to the table. I'm going to try it. Not without the professor you won't. It might be dangerous. But that was the wrong thing to say. The green eyes glowed brighter as she cast me a whimsical glance. But I am, she said. Dick, I'm going to see my ideal man, she laughed softly. I was panicky. Suppose her ideal turned out tall and dark and powerful instead of short and sandy-haired and a bit, well, chubby, as I am. No, I said vehemently, I won't let you. She laughed again. I suppose she read my consternation, for she said softly, Don't be silly, Dick. She sat down, placed her face against the opening of the barrel, and commanded, Turn it on. I couldn't refuse her. I set the mirror whirling, then switched on the bank of tubes. Then immediately I stepped behind her, squinting into what was visible of the flashing mirror, where a face was forming, slowly, vaguely. I thrilled. Surely the hair of the image was sandy. I even fancied now that I could trace a resemblance to my own features. Perhaps Denise sensed something similar, for she suddenly withdrew her eyes from the tube and looked up with a faintly embarrassed flush, a thing most unusual for her. Ideals are dull, she said. I want a real thrill. Do you know what I'm going to see? I'm going to visualize the ideal horror. That's what I'll do. I'm going to see absolute horror. Oh, no, you're not, I gasped. That's a terribly dangerous idea. Off in the other room I heard the voice of Van Manderputz. Dixon! Dangerous? Bosh, Denise retorted. I'm a writer, Dick. All this means to me is material. It's just experience, and I want it. Van Manderputz again. Dixon! Dixon! Come here! I said, listen, Denise, I'll be right back. Don't try anything until I'm here, please. I dashed into the big laboratory. Van Manderpootz was facing a cowled group of assistants, quite apparently in extreme awe of the great man. Ha! Huh. Dixon, he rasped. Tell these fools what an emeric valve is and why it won't operate in a free electron stream. Let them see that even an ordinary engineer knows that much. Well, an ordinary engineer doesn't, but it happened that I did. Not that I'm particularly exceptional as an engineer, but I did happen to know that because a year or two before I'd done some work on the big tidal turbines up in Maine where they have to use emmerich valves to guard against electrical leakage from the tremendous potentials in their condensers. So I started explaining, and Van Manderpootz kept interpolating sarcasms about his staff, and when I finally finished I suppose I'd been there half an hour. And then I remembered Denise. I left Van Manderpootz staring as I rushed back, and sure enough there was the girl with her face pressed against the barrel and her hands gripping the table edge. Her features were hidden, of course, but there was something about her strained position, her white knuckles. Denise, I yelled. Are you all right? Denise. She didn't move. I stuck my face in between the mirror and the end of the barrel and peered up the tube at her visage, and what I saw left me all but stunned. Have you ever seen stark, mad, infinite terror on a human face? That was what I saw in Denise's inexpressible, unbearable horror worse than the fear of death could ever be. Her green eyes were widened, so that the whites showed around them. Her perfect lips were contorted, her whole face strained into a mask of sheer terror. 
I rushed for the switch, but in passing I caught a single glimpse of what showed in the mirror. I incredible, I obscene, terror-laden, horrifying things. There just aren't words for them. There are no words. Denise didn't move as the tubes darkened. I raised her face from the barrel, and when she glimpsed me she moved. She flung herself out of the chair and away, facing me with such mad terror that I halted. Denise, I cried, it's just Dick. Look, Denise. But as I moved towards her she uttered a choking scream. Her eyes dulled, her knees gave, and she fainted. Whatever she had seen must have been appalling to the utmost, for Denise was not the sort to faint. It was a week later that I sat facing Van Manderpootz in his little inner office. The gray metal figure of Isaac was missing, and the table that had held the idealizator was empty. "'Yes,' said Van Manderpootz, "'I've dismantled it. One of Van Manderpootz's few mistakes was to leave it around where a pair of incompetents like you and Denise could get to it. It seems that I continually overestimate the intelligence of others. I suppose I tend to judge them by the brain of Van Manderpootz.' I said nothing. I was thoroughly disheartened and depressed, and whatever the professor said about my lack of intelligence, I felt it justified. Hereafter, resumed Van Manderpootz, I shall credit nobody except myself with intelligence, and will doubtless be much more nearly correct. He waved a hand at Isaac's vacant corner. Not even the bacon head, he continued. I've abandoned that project, because when you come right down to it, what need has the world of a mechanical brain when it already has that of Van Manderputz? Professor, I burst out suddenly, why won't they let me see Denise? I've been at the hospital every day, and they let me into her room just once, just once, and that time she went right into a fit of hysterics. Why? Is she? I gulped. She's recovering nicely, Dixon. Then why can't I see her? Well, said Van Manderputz placidly, it's like this. You see, when you rushed into the laboratory there, you made the mistake of pushing your face in front of the barrel. She saw your features right in the midst of all those horrors she had called up. Do you see? From then on, your face was associated in her mind with the whole hell's brew in the mirror. She can't even look at you without seeing all of it again. Good God! I gasped. But she'll get over it, won't she? She'll forget that part of it. The young psychiatrist who attends her, a bright chap, by the way, with a number of my own ideas, believes she'll be quite over it in a couple of months, but personally, Dixon, I don't think she'll ever welcome the sight of your face, though I myself have seen uglier visages somewhere or other. I ignored that. Lord, I groaned, what a mess! I rose to depart, and then, then I knew what inspiration means. Listen, I said, spinning back, listen, Professor, why can't you get her back here and let her visualize the ideally beautiful, and then I'll stick my face into that? Enthusiasm grew. I can't fail, I cried. At the worst, it'll cancel that other memory. It's marvelous. But as usual, said Van Manderpootz, a little late. Late? Why? You can put up your idealizator again. You'd do that much, wouldn't you? Van Manderpootz, he observed, is the very soul of generosity. I'd do it gladly, but it's still a little late, Dixon. You see, she married the bright young psychiatrist this noon. Well, I've a date with Tipsalva tonight, and I'm going to be late for it, just as late as I please, and then I'm going to do nothing but stare at her lips all evening. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Paul. Uh, hello, I'm the Grip Schnobbler. A.K.A. Tony. Yes. <laughs> Tony D. Simone. Um, your first time on the podcast, I think. It is. It is. And it's actually, this is only the second podcast I've ever guested on. Oh, really? Okay. And the, 
The only other one I've guested on so far is uh, the Star Trek Wars podcast, which and that was several years ago. We're going to talk about The Ideal by Stanley G. Weinbaum. This was your pick, uh, Tony. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed hearing y'all discuss Pygmalion spectacles, and so I, right. uh, and I, that, that's when I started saying I'd love to hear y'all talk about one of these stories. And, well, and I'm, uh, I'm a big Weinbaum fan, so uh, of course I'd want to. You know, talk about other ones. And I, I, I forgot Greg Marguerite had recorded them. Yep. And given how thematic how thematic resonances we have between Pygmalion and Specials, Spectacles and the Ideal, I it's it's a good it's a good it's, follow up on the previous story. It's pretty interestingly similar, right? Yeah. Uh, all three stories are kind of um there's three stories with Professor Van Manderpoots and uh, I really like all three of them. Yeah, but uh, ironically, I thought I remembered this one being the most problematic. But then when I re-listened to all three of them, I was like, they're all a little problematic. But this is actually the most probably the, the most interesting. Have, this has the most big, to talk about in it. I have to put my big lib goggles on because I I I don't I I didn't notice anything that would trigger anybody. So I'm I'm gonna put them on and oh. I'm gonna guess what what you thought was the problem. <laughs> oh, nothing nothing that bad. Just just um just just is a little dated in its handling of uh, you know uh, relations. Ma- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Quite, I, it's quite of its time. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I I, I think um it's just sort of um not overly sensitive. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I, I'd say I, I don't think there's any pro, like I didn't see there's any. I I I I mean, this is there's a strong male gaze to the story. I mean, Tips Alva, <laughs> the vision dancer, the little blonde imp who entertains on the Yerba Mat Hour for the Brazilian Company. Yeah, Paul, do you do you know how funny that <laughs> that strong male gaze is in the context of this story? That's pretty well, goddamn it, funny. I <laughs> mean, it it, it, it is. Using his gaze, the ideal woman. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it and it's not exactly. like it's not like our main character is being portrayed as a particularly good person. <laughs> no, no, no. The first he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's an absolute cad, I would and, say. And, well, he's an, in all cad. three in all three stories, he's a bit of a cad, and in all three stories he almost um he almost gets the perfect girlfriend and then it and then it doesn't happen because of a twist of because of the twist at the end of the story. So I'm it's like, because I'm like, I'm trying to understand that he's, he's definitely out for girls. Well, just that he's, he's, he's kind of selfish and he's, um, he's young. you know, he's not very, uh, you know, em- empathetic or sensitive towards other people. Um, <laughs> you know, I guess, which, which I guess most people aren't, but I, I don't know. Uh, uh, what's so funny, though, is I think all of this is defeated by just reading the story, because <laughs> at one point, the the girl puts her face in the the oven <laughs> of this the view. idealizator. Yes. And what does she see? She sees her male ideal. Right. Who looks a hell of a lot like our hero. Does that actually happen? I thought oh, she yeah. actually. Yeah, thought yeah, yeah that, that, that. that does happen. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're no, right. It's not told. From that point of view, the story's not told from her, her point of view. She doesn't come into the story quite until quite late, yeah. right? As an actual human being. However, 
<laughs> you know, saying it's a male gay story. Absolutely. I mean, that's literally the whole point of the story. But also, the girl <laughs> does the exact same thing. <laughs> and it's true. not even like me and uh, visualize what she's interested in. It's just a picture of what somebody looks like, right? So uh, it, he's playing with these concepts. Uh, I think it's in- incredibly well done in Pygmalion Spectacles, but it's also a little more focused on the concept here, whereas there it, it works out the same way. The Vanderput's equivalent in that story is. Uh, he's her uncle, I yeah, think. Her, her uncle, her uncle, and that, that feel like he was pimping her. Remember when we discussed about that? It feels oh, like he's talking about Van Mander. Would you like to meet her? Yeah, it's not yeah. Van Manderhoots in that one, right? He's uh, no, he, he's the equivalent. He's oh, a sailor. Alien spectacles, like sorry. yes, big alien spectacles, an inventor, and he's he's uh, used his niece, who's from another city, right to. Uh, but it's this, it, it's almost like this incident actually happened. <laughs> it's it's Albert Ludwig. Yes, it's Ludwig, right? Ludwig, thank you. Another it's, European it's, scientist type, right? Another Euro- European, no, n- nowhere near as um, bombastic as I am Mandraboots. It's like that <laughs> didn't amuse me throughout the story that Mandraboots has such a inflated ber- ego and opinion of himself. He's um, actually, Greg Marguerite's really good at picking that out and sort of yeah. performing that aspect of the story. I, I love how he almost always, like, raises his voice just a little bit when he says, Van Menderpoots. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> uh, Greg had great taste in, in science fiction. And actually, I think I, I probably got to a lot of, I'm just thinking of how many he recorded for uh, LibriVox. A lot. He were, he was one of the earliest uh, science fiction readers, and he read a lot, and he had really good taste. And uh, I'm I, I never too. This. Say again. I thought he was a pretty good reader too. Oh yeah. Um. Some people don't like his readings. Like I put a lot of them up on uh, YouTube, and I, I understand why some people might not like his readings. But um, to me, he's like Wayne June. He has a gravitas to his voice. He knows how to pronounce the things. He reads some. Some people thought it was like he reads like a robot, <laughs> and I agree. He's not like a um, an actor kind of reader, but actually, I prefer a straight narration rather than performance narration. Although, you know, if you're a great performance narrator, sometimes it works. That depends on the text, but um, I I mostly want you to pronounce the words correctly and not mm-hmm. stumble too much. Make sure the edit's good. <laughs> Other, uh, and 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 more importantly, just have great taste because he picked good stuff. You know, he did a mm-hmm. ton of Mark Twain, and um, and he was he was always pushing to get the good stuff out there, and and uh, didn't just you know he was treating it like a serious hobby. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and I li- and I listened to a whole lot of uh, his LibriVox recordings when, like I said, when I was uh, first starting to discover all the uh, podcasts and audio fiction online and making MP3 discs and all that. <laughs> like his actually, website is still online. I think uh, 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 Greg's Acoustic Pulp. I'm just looking it up now. I think that's what he called it. And basically, it's uh, just a complete yeah Acoustic Pulp. Um, it's a complete listing. It's a blog, but with no new entries and 
you know, no, no real entries at all. It's just one big entry, mm. uh, listing all of his LibriVox recordings and a few other things that were here and there, like he did one for us. Uh, but he he did focus a lot. I think he tried to do everything that was available um, by Weinbaum, and uh, rightly so, because Weinbaum is should be better known. He should be um, reprinted and uh, adapted and all the things you can do with a, a really great idea, man. Because that's what he was. And this story oh, is, yeah. I mean, it's right in the title, The Ideal. It's, um, <laughs> it's, it's legit. And, you know, um, I want to I point out that this is a tradition that he's got here with this story. Many other authors pick this up. Um, probably the least, the one you least expect, even Philip K. Dick has a, a Professor Mandrapoots style character. His character's name is uh, Doc Labyrinth, and it's a series of short stories. It's only two stories long, but it's a series of short stories in which a, the narrator, who is our hero, basically a Philip K. Dick or Stanley G. Weinbaum type, goes over <laughs> to his ex-professor's house <laughs> and hangs out for a bit and gets, you know, scolded and this, uh, it's, it's, it's cajoled and yeah, all that stuff. And, you know, this is very familiar to all of us who grew up in the 1980s or alive in the 1980s because that's Doc Brown from Back to the Future. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, in fact, um, Professor Labyrinth, um, <laughs> who uh, or Doc Labyrinth from the two Philip K. Dick stories. Um, one of the stories is called, uh, I think it's um, something like the Curious Case of the Brown Oxford. Um, so the Brown might actually be of Doc Brown might just be a lift from that. But it's about mm. a, a it, the professor um, has invented a machine which looks like a Dutch oven, which is basically it's a little countertop oven thing uh, with a cover. <laughs> it's just a way of cooking food, right? Um, and uh, he he's turned that into a uh, device that can bring anything that's inanimate alive. <laughs> so in the case of the story, he puts a pair of, of uh, shoes in there accidentally, and uh, the shoes come alive. <laughs> One of them runs off and marries like a sock or something. <laughs> it's, a, it's a ridiculous comedy okay, story. Then. That sounds pretty funny, though. It's really funny. And Philip K. Dick, I'm fairly confident, picked it up from from this tradition. I don't know that um, that we actually have Weinbaum in these three stories wholly responsible for that because there are preceding stories. You know, it goes right back to Frankenstein. Um, but the tradition there is a little bit different. But even um, Francis Stevens has a 1906 story in which there's a, a scientist professor who, you know, accidentally experiments on somebody. And um, it, it's, a, it's a fine and upstanding tradition. It's a way to bring the reader into the story. But here we've actually got some really interesting stuff as well as, you know, it's not technologically very realistic. But there's some philosophical stuff in here that is pretty interesting. And I know um, I, w when you were saying you wanted to do one of these three stories, I said, well, which one do you want to do? And you picked the middle one. So uh, <laughs> yeah. you want to talk about um, the first one's called uh, Worlds of If? Or is it? Yeah. 
Worlds of If, I think, is the first first one in the series, right? Yes. So uh, that that's a similar premise. He invents a device, and what does the device do? Uh, yeah, all three stories involve um, a device created by Van Manderpoots that uh, um, Dixon Wells tries to uh, take advantage of. Um, in the first one, uh, he he creates a device that allows you to see um, uh, how things might have happened uh, differently. It's like the mirror universe, sort of. He, he, kind of, yeah. He, like he alludes to that one in this story. Um, the yeah, junk divisor. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So, 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 so he's actually re- referring to this earlier story in this with with that. Oh, I didn't realize that. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, don't know if, I don't know if you want. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just saying each of the stories stand alone, but they are in sequence, right? They are in sequence, and they and they do kind of uh, reference each other a little bit. Um, and uh, I was I wasn't sure if you wanted me to go into any spoilers for the other two stories. Um, have you listened to this podcast? <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, but still, I wanted to make no. sure. Uh, no, no, uh, 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 no, no, Spoil away. This is Jesse's thing. Well, well make me in, interested in reading it. <laughs> telling me what it was. It's all about. Well, in worlds of if he um. He, he he decides to see what would have happened if he hadn't have been l- late for um for his his flight um because he misses a flight and it turns out if he had been on time for the flight he would have met the perfect woman but they also would have died in a plane crash uh, uh well that's not gonna work <laughs> yeah and then and then he he tries to he he decide he, he he wants to try to find the woman anyway but it turns out she she married the pilot Yes, that's sort of what happens here too, right? Yeah, and then causing him to miss out on his best girl. And, and in the point of view, that one I actually kind of feel like it's in a lot of ways is kind of the most messed up one. But in in the point of view, he um, Van Manderpoots invents this machine that actually lets you perceive things from the point of view of of other people, and it and it's kind of about how different people experience. Uh, and perceive things differently. Uh, kind of like how the male gaze is equally uh, done by the female. <laughs> right. <laughs> Called the female uh, gaze. Well, what happens in this story, though, is he, um, at one point, he he sees the, the, the there's a secretary, Van Manderpoots' secretary, who he and the professor don't really think t- too much of, but he, he sees the secretary through uh, the eyes of the janitor, and the janitor's like in love with her, and Dixon becomes obsessed with, um, he be- because because she seems so perfect from the janitor's <laughs> point of view. He becomes obsessed with trying to actually like um, ingrain that point of view in his own head, mm. so so he can get involved with the secretary. But Van Manderpoots catches him and and um calls him out on it and 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 sends the janitor and the secretary off to get married. So this is uh, this is what, why I like Weinbaum so much. So <laughs> when you're reading Weinbaum, you you notice it's fun, right? It's fun. But what you may not notice, especially if you're young, when I read my first Weinbaum, is that it was it was it was fun, but I didn't maybe notice how deep it is. It's incredibly deep. So let's talk about these three stories. So the first one is uh, Worlds of If, which, by the way, there's a, a magazine named after 
that mm-hmm. right? a science fiction magazine. Um, then we get the ideal, and then we have the point of view. So the worlds of if is what what if is really the question. And in fact, I think somebody has an essay saying that if is the most important word for science and for understanding, right? And there's a, another story called If This Goes On, right? Bunch of, uh, yeah, it's basically, it's, it's intimately connected to the idea of uh, projecting into the future. And in fact, all, this story and the other three are all set in our present day, right? In the 21st century. Oh, uh, I know. They, they go from 2014 to 2015 over the course of the three stories. That's right. And in, in this one, there's a reference back to the, the great stock market crash of 2009, which is off by one year. Off by <laughs> oh, wow. One year, that's... Right? Um, yeah. he's, he's, he knows what he's doing, Weinbaum. Right, even though he's he's only he's dying in the nineteen. Uh, there's a lot of smoking in this one too. I I seem to recall. Um, uh, he should have known that it, it was going to kill him, and I guess he did. <laughs> um, because he his output is incredible just for those couple of years that he was putting them out. But um, so in in the in the worlds of if we've got a projection around the world. In this story, we've got uh, the idea of the perfect. And the perfect mm-hmm. is something that is incredibly important for understanding human psychology and understanding reality. Uh, we'll get into that, I think, a little bit. And then in the last one, point of view, um, we're seeing it, the world, as subjectively through the eyes of other people, right? Mm-hmm. How would it be if you were the one in that situation? How would you want it to be? So that's... Uh, Famously tackled later on by a guy named John Rawls with his uh, uh, behind the veil of ignorance kind of philosophy saying, if you were going to be born on this planet, um, how would you want to be born? Would you want to be born into the uh, a random person or would you want to be born into the family of a rich person? Um, well, if you're behind the veil of ignorance and you don't know whose family you're going to get born into, whether you're going to be born to a poor black family in the South in the 1930s, or you're going to be born into a 2020 uh, rich white family in New York, right? Was it going to, which, if, if you don't know where you're going to get born into and you don't know the stats, wouldn't you want everything to be equal <laughs> so that you have the best chance of like just living a good, happy and non-painful life? And of course that makes sense. But getting into other people's point of view and other people's shoes is, is pretty hard. Here, uh, the ideal, it's ridiculous, right? This technology is, <laughs> it's, it's, a, he knows it's ridiculous. He's in, he invents three, uh, new particles just in this story, right? Yeah. Or this has, um, describes them. This has some, speaking of, you know, Weinbaum being innovative, this has some of the, some early, really early techno babble. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. it's techno it's techno babble in service of the point that he's he's trying to go for which is yeah. which is so this is goes right back to Plato and the Republic where you've got a situation where we want, all want justice what is <clears throat> justice and Plato goes around asking uh well yes Socrates go around asking everybody what they think uh, justice is and if you think justice is uh doing right to your friends and doing harm to your enemies, that doesn't work if you are subjectively chosen as somebody's enemy. But if your idea of justice is 
to be virtuous in all actions, that's going to give a different result. And in that exploration, we actually have um, a, a kind of, onto- it's not ontology. Basically, Plato gives um, uh, an explanation of where learning and perception comes from. And he says that our reality is uh, a false, shittier version of the perfect, right? The for- it's a realm shadow. Of, it's the a realm shadow. of well, yeah, he has got the myth of the cave, but he talks about the realm of the forms, which is where we all came from before we were born, before we picked it, picked out as an individual spark and placed into a egg or, you know, zygote, and born into this world. We had perfect knowledge and perfect understanding of everything, and in the realm of the forms, we knew the ideal. And then when you're born, the tra- the trauma of childbirth made you have amnesia. <laughs> and in learning about the world, you're actually not uh, learning anything. You're actually being exposed to things you were familiar with, the shadows that are the shittier version of our reality. So when I point across the room and say, that's a chair, and you look at it and you agree with me, it's not because it is a chair, because it's just a connection of wood and plastic and such with a seat cushion on it, right? What makes it a chair is that we both know what a chair is because we saw the ideal of a chair in the realm of the forms. And maybe we get to go there in the end as well after we die and get reacquainted and can have this whole theory. But the point of that ridiculous uh, mythology that he's building up is it's an explanation for why we recognize things. So we uh, instinctually are fearful of some things when we are born and as we walk around the world and things above us are higher, they're perhaps dangerous and loud noises and fire. All of these things are seemingly built into us. But if I were to say to you, I've got a device and you look into it and you think of the word house and you see the perfect house, how much of that visualization will be calculated by you prior to you sticking your head into the machine? Because I've got an idea of what a nice house looks like. Poe wrote a whole essay about what the perfect room looks like and how it's furnished. And I don't agree with his. <laughs> but who's doing the calculation, right? Is right. it the machine that he's built? It takes your, your what are they called, psychons, and, and gives you back in a mirror, right, what you think is perfect. How many of those calculations are done by you? And yet we know... When we look at faces, a series of them, this one is more attractive than that one, at least in some situations. Or we can come to think that this thing is like that hairstyle is more attractive. But yet we all remember also the shitty fashions we saw in the 80s that didn't stop us from wearing those shitty fashions or not laughing ridiculously at the big hair or the shoulder pads, right? So I don't know. I kind of like 80s fashion, but I'm... That's what I'm saying is... is um, I was a kid in the 80s, so maybe that was a fact. <laughs> of course it is, but uh, <laughs> if you go watch Miami Vice now and you look at what those guys were wearing, you might start to question... <laughs> Your own prior these... taste. <laughs> oh, like what, what people were thinking. And, At and least that's what he's playing with here. <laughs> that's what he's playing with here. It is. And he does make a point that when people look into the idealizator, it, it shows their ideal. 
And he says that it's later on, he says it's generated from the things you were exposed to in youth. Right. So he says, oh, this woman, I recognize her. She was alive 25. She was active in uh, advertising 25 years ago. Right? It's like you watch a movie and you see a, a woman who's got to be her great grandmother's age. <laughs> and you say, my God, she's sexy. <laughs> well, she is she still as sexy to you now? Because if if so, you might be able to go find her in an old folks home. Right. It's just <laughs> it's just a question of. Now you make me think of somewhere in time the movie. Yeah, of course. <laughs> where, where, yeah, where, where he go, where he does go find find her in the old age home after he's gone back in time to meet her. Is in that the, is that based on uh, Jack Finney or is that the other guy? Jack Finney. Yeah, it's Jack Finney. Yeah, of course, it's Jack Finney because Jack Finney is so nostalgic. Yeah, yes, I yeah yeah yeah. I, I mean, I I, I counted that movie that I read uh, another story about someone being able to find a missing. Thing of Grand Central Station going back to 1890. Like, why would you want to go back to 1890? I didn't get the nostalgia that it came away like, hmm? but you know, but that also then reminds me of Midnight in Paris, where the main character goes back to the time of uh, the time of uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald and and what's his name, um, Ernest Hemingway and stuff, and now Salvador Dali. But he meets someone there who's nostalgic for the previous past, and so she goes even further in the past, thinking mm-hmm. that's the nostalgia. So the nostalgia is almost like a, always a receding window. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, what's funny is I, I was actually just talking about this and talking about Ray Bradbury in a, a series of tweets, and that's actually why I Ray Bradbury is not my favorite author, not even close, is because he is so like Jack Finney. He's so nostalgic. He's so about the idealization of a perfect time in the past. And what's funny is I, I, I get it, and I agree with Ray Bradbury about a lot of the stuff that he's nostalgic about, but I wasn't alive then. <laughs> That's the right. difference. He was, right? When he talks about, you know, this perfect Ohio, <laughs> this perfect small town, the Halloween and all the feelings associated with it. And he's, he's sort of, he lives there. He dwells there. Jack Finney's the same way. He, <laughs> he just soaks it in and wants to reflect it back to himself in, in the fiction. He's actually talking about a place that he, where he was and how, how he was. Whereas I was like, I, I wasn't born until the seventies. So I, I can't be nostalgic about something before I was born. Can I? Question mark, question mark. And the answer is only if you believe in this idea of the of the perfect, right? The perfect is a mistake that we have. And this story is an exploration of that idea, and it's mm-hmm. kind of a ridiculing of it, I think, as well. It is. And and nostalgia is a tricky thing, too, because like uh in like in Midnight in Paris, they're well. They're nos- he's nostalgic, but he's nostalgic for an era that he actually wasn't from. Mm. So but, you know, he's, he 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 wasn't around in 1920s Paris. You know, yeah, or, he fell in love with 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 the period that it's it's kind of like what I was saying. You know, like I I used to think anything after 1899 was uninteresting. <laughs> anything <laughs> in the 1890s is fine, <laughs> but if you go to 1899 and then you go one more day, I'm like, no, not interesting, right? <laughs> but that's because I hadn't been shown how to see it and how to see it as interesting because. There's lots of interesting stuff after then. Now, if you start saying to me, Jesse, 
uh, fiction from the 1970s was was amazing. I'm going to say, I don't think so. <laughs> now, if you say movies from the 1970s were amazing, I'm, of course they were, right? <laughs> but it's just what you were shown, what you were exposed to, what you can be shown to appreciate. Um, so when we get this very silly story <laughs> of a guy who sees in a mirror his perfect woman, <laughs> or no, not even woman, perfect girl, right? It is. It, it yeah. describes her 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 costume even, right? And what mm-hmm. one of the th- one of the words that was to describe her costume was I want to say carapace, but that's not the word for it. Is is basically a piece of armor that goes in the front and the back. It's like <laughs> this is coming to fashion. What what's that word that's in Curious? the story? Curass, yeah, it was a curass. <laughs> so, well, like, oh, that thing's back in fashion now. Okay, um, I don't think curass. I mean, it's fashion. It's fashionable in the 1930s pulp yep. magazines. I, I must be a prudal harp, for she wasn't wearing the usual curass and shorts of that year. That it's like body armor and shorts. That's okay, right. I mean, we've seen weirder things in fashion, but so <laughs> you know. not not if you look at the covers of those magazines from the 1930s. That's uh, standard, right? I was gonna I was gonna say science fiction's always been known for coming up with like really crazy outfits. Uh, you for people y'all wear. Seen, y'all seen uh, Return of the Jedi? Princess Leia's slave costume is the brass brassiers from the 1930s comics, right? The oh, futuristic bathing oh, yeah, yeah, suit. Right. And uh, obviously uh, that's part of the equipment Jabba issued her because he was enjoying (laughs) the 1930s comic books um, when he was a kid. (laughs) Um, There's uh, kind of a male gaze. I'm pretty sure Jabba was supposed to be male, right? Uh, Yeah. Jabba's male gaze there. (laughs) Jabba is male. Um, And not particularly discriminant about which uh, species he's, he's enslaving. No, 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 because 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 we see that other slave girl that he's clearly lascivious over, who winds up getting sent to the the record beast. So yeah, yeah. she she does have long uh, sensuous tentacles for hair. So maybe that's what he <laughs> likes. I don't know. Well, they were. Why are we talking? Why do we talk about Jabba the Hutt's sexual proclivities on this because, podcast? Because <laughs> because I don't know about sexual proclivities, but a gay's proclivities. It's about it's about the ideal, right? What makes Star Wars work so well is it's coming out of a kind of context that we were probably not aware of at the time, right? It's a hearkening back to this period of time that I guess George Lucas was very much aware of. Well, it harkens um, back to the pulp era, too. That's what exactly what I'm talking about. It's it's the serials and the pulps, and the pulps inform the serials, right? Mm-hmm. Buck Rogers starts in the in the pulps and he goes to the serials and um, what's the other guy? He's also in the comics. Flash right? Gordon. Flash Gordon, right? Flash Gordon and, and Buck Rogers are coming out of this context where everybody is wearing a sword for no reason and cuirasses and um, <laughs> and you know flying vehicles and Ming the merciless aliens and all of that good stuff. It's a it's amazing that he can do these two things. He makes it a a little comedy piece that seems in, inconsequential, but also is trying to show sort of that disconnection between our our perception of how things are, that there is this perfect woman out there for me, and the reality. 
and mm-hmm. and that's and that's the same thing that happens in Pygmalion spectacles, right? He doesn't go that extra step and like a F- Philip K. Dick does, right? Where he says, "I'm I'm pulling the r-, he pulls the rug out from under you," but then you just laugh. Whereas Philip K. Dick pulls the rug out, and then he says, uh, "See that trap door in the <laughs> in the earth beneath you? Yep, you're going to go into a new reality." It, he he's very subtle. It's not it's not this continuous thing. It's a it's he's he's got two things going. He's he's making an examination of the phenomenon and also dismissing it and showing it to be a kind of false reality. I I can't say that about Worlds of If because I if I read it, it was so long ago I I don't remember. But um, I think that we get that in Pygmalion Spectacles as well. It's. I- I'd say that's kind of an element of all three of the Van Manderpoot stories. It, it's kind of the way Van Manderpoots himself is, right? Mm-hmm. We know he's smart. He tells us he's smart. But we also know <laughs> a smart guy wouldn't act that way. <laughs> it's because his wiseness is not as strong as his smartness. And right. yeah, in, in, in shown terms, in his int is high, but his wisdom is not so high. It's even shown in the story when he says, you know, I'm going to take this... Uh, this robot apart and uh, use it to, you know, do something else. When he, when our hero comes, Basil, was it Basil Wells? Dixon. Dixon. I don't know why I got Basil. When Dixon comes back um, the next week, it's still there, right? His plan went afoul. And he says, hey, it's still here. And he says, yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, but we also noticed, like, um, when I sent you the file for this, um, it had uh, the cover story. It was on the cover of Wonder Stories. And it has a giant robot dinosaur attacking a car. <laughs> and he said, that's not the story we're doing. And I'm like, no, that's the story we're doing. And he said, I don't think so. <laughs> well, because it's in the story. It's just not the focus, right? Right. It's a very small part of the story. And they just kind of picked out the most visual, visually sensational part they could, I guess. Idealized. <laughs> they they idealized it, yes. Right? <laughs> they took the idea and they said, what would make the best part? Of, I mean, if you see it, what actually happens in the story is sort of the cl- most interesting scene of the actual physical actions of the characters, it's a guy sticking his head into a cannon. <laughs> and the, the, I've seen many covers of uh, Hugo Gernsback magazines where that exactly happens, or two people are, have TV heads or something, right? And they're looking at each other with their TV heads. But people sitting around in a room plugged into electric, you know, electrical devices ain't that interesting. Put a giant robo robosaurus chewing up some guy's car, and as he flees down the street of New York, that's interesting. <laughs> And so he, we actually never see that creature in the story perform that function. And we also notice, like, if, <laughs> if he had built it, um, that would have been a disaster, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Trying to make the ideal predator for the, for the urban jungle. Wasn't that just kind of part of a thought experiment he was doing, really? Of course, and this is why I'm saying he's uh, Weinbaum's so smart is because this is actually the tradition that you go back to in Frankenstein, right? Uh, I was I was show noting a show recently. I mentioned Frankenstein and Frankenstein. Most people take the wrong memory lesson from it, which is there are some things that man was not meant to know, 
right? Or mm-hmm. don't play God. And that's actually not the message of Frankenstein. Message Wait a of Frank- Yep. Go ahead. Go. So what is the message of Frankenstein then? The Gee, message Jeff of Lee? Frankenstein is if you're going to have kids, don't abandon them. I I, I, I I embrace the power of the word and. I think there are multiple messages to take from Frankenstein. And play, playing, playing God has unintended and serious consequences is one of them. And, parent, and being a good parent is another one, but they're not mutually contradictory or exclusive messages to take from Frankenstein. What lesson do the do most people take, though? Most people go for the, yes, playing God, but that doesn't mean that they're wrong. It means that they're not seeing all the potential messages that are out there that you say you favor. Well, one, it's not that I favor them. It's They're in there. So think about Right, think but, but, but that's the one you're focusing on. You see, you see, you're saying one most... You, you're, 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 I'm you're, not going to argue... You're saying that's the better one. That's a, well, it that's is a, the better one, and here's no, why. I, I'm not. I'm not saying there's a better one necessarily. I mean, the the most the, the most <laughs> the most discussed one is 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 the God one, but it's not the only one. Well, there's two things, right? I actually said there was two things. There's one is there are some things that man was not meant to know, right? That's actually not the most common one. The more the more common one is um, playing God is wrong. Um, but I, I think th- those are very. I don't know. You sure those are quite separate messages because not meant to know means it should be reserved to God. So I think those kind of bleed into each other. Of course they, of course they bleed into each other, and and of course it's connected to um, uh, making babies because God is a guy who makes some babies. <laughs> he makes a man, and then he makes a woman out of the man, and then they do a sort of godlike thing and create their own babies and in so doing um, create hell on earth, right? It's a, <laughs> they leave the garden of Eden having knowledge um, and start eating other animals instead of um, living peacefully forever in heaven. Uh, I don't want, I don't want to get this too far deep into Frankenstein because <laughs> we do have a show on that, but I will point out that when you think about Frankenstein, what caused him to go so wrong in the first place um, usually, like when you think of the movies, the the uh, adaptations that people are more familiar with, um, the motivation is he's got hubris, kind of, and he wants to um, he wants to show off his intelligence, which is very much what we see in in our hero, our our uh, Van Man, Van Manderpoots in this story, Van right? Yeah, so he's he's very much of that ilk, but actually. Um, he he's driven in the novel to defeat death. He wants to see death defeated and he creates a creature that is immortal, that is stronger and healthier than humans who are prone to death, like his mom. Right. And, and uh, later on we see like uh, the creature punishes him by taking away the things that would allow him to actually be immortal, which is having kids. Um, and that's all a, a result of him not taking care of his own child on, on upon its birth. Well, it's I mean, it's kind of like if you get a dog, don't abuse it, raise it and it won't bite you raise it properly. And it won't bite you. Well, well, I was gonna say, sorry. Oh, well, I mean, I was just going to say like Frankenstein doesn't really start treating people. He doesn't really get, 
she doesn't start treating people badly or being vindictive until he's realized that he's been neglected and then feels like he's been, you know, rejected by society. Indeed. And if you think about how this story is, the messaging of it, it kind of is, is that our hero is a little bit too uh, ditzy to, um, (laughs) to get into a relationship because he's not committed. He hasn't committed to showing up on time. And if he's not even committed for something like, you know, that he wants to do that, you know, he thinks is going to be the, the ideal, then he's probably not ready. That's um actually, that reminds me, one of the funniest parts of the story is when, uh, is, is at the point where he's feeling at his most distraught and mm-hmm. he's so distraught that he starts actually getting to work on time. I, and, yeah. And then, and then his dad, who is his boss is worried about him because he started showing up to work on time. <laughs> I noticed that this theme is actually, it, it seems like it's, uh, I'm reading a lot into it, but it's all there. Like, for example, Van Manderpoot says, oh, I know that girl, as he looks, as our hero looks into the mirror for the second time, right? He's like, yeah, I almost became her third husband. Uh, I, I was almost her, her second husband. And then yes, we, the dragonfly. Get, yeah. But we get the line. <laughs> The next line is, she's had seven. (laughs) Now, the reason she's had seven is because she was an object of massive desire and she was of poor decision-making ability. We know this because she almost, yes, but she almost married a a ditz himself, Van Manderpoots, (laughs) who would have, you know, brilliant as he is, um, he's, he can't get over himself and would make a terrible father, right? (laughs) He just uh, he makes a good uncle, though. It, it's kind of like it's kind of like the way we see the relationship in with Doc Brown and Marty McFly, right? Marty McFly's um, got this strange relationship that's never explained, right? How did they meet? He wasn't <laughs> um, he was his school teacher. Well, 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 well if they're neighbors, they, right? Uh, if you take the circular loop of time, they meet because Doc Brown met him when he came back in time, so he knew he had to go that when when he was born when he was born that he'd have to watch over him, which makes it well, of course of course where did the loop begin? But you can you can explain well, that no, as a stable. It, it's actually not because if you think about it, like when Marty shows up, right? Um, Doc Brown doesn't know who he is. Marty knows who Doc Brown is. Right, right, right. No, right. So, so after Marty leaves 1955, then Doc Brown knows that in 20, 30 years he <laughs> needs to mentor this young man because he yes, met him already. So doesn't know that the Libyans are going to do like it, it doesn't make sense it, to think of it as a as a, a perfectly it's not a Heinleinian. Yeah, I know it's not by his bootstraps or all you zombies. It's not as rigorous as as Heinlein is with that. No, we still we still have to do all you zombies in predestination. You know, we have that on the schedule somewhere as a possibility somewhere. If not, we should because I want to do that story and that movie. But that's a that's a side issue. It is, Um, but uh, I think that the that 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 relationship is he's the avuncular uncle. So what does he do? Well, the I think the very first scene of that movie is Marty McFly playing with his guitar. He's not a great guitarist or anything, right? But the doc has built him a giant, huge amplifier because he says, Doc, I need more power. (laughs) They already turned it up to 11, so they just have to get a bigger actual amplifier. 
<laughs> and he push, does the first note and it blows him like through the door into the next room or something, right? Yeah. And it's 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 a uh, it's designed to be the same comedic relationship. Doc Brown is not <laughs> not somebody you want as a role model, and yet you can't but help be appreciative of what he's got going. <laughs> Fun he's the fun. uncle you definitely want, though. Yeah, I mean it's it's super fun, but yeah, he shouldn't be getting in bed with the Libyans because <laughs> it ends up almost killing him, or technically killing him, and then getting saved in the end by. Oh, we still talking about Doc Brown? <laughs> yeah, we, Doc we're Brown. Still I mean, it, it, it's the same story. It's just a different phenomenon, right? <laughs> I think I was reading about Professor Van Manderpoot's. Uh, I was on, I think, a website about. Uh, about public domain heroes. Um, somebody had written up, basically just combined some Wikipedia entries and some own original research and saying, you know, this character exists. By the way, there is a, actually, uh, somebody did that. There is an author named John R. Pierce, who in 1970 published a, an, uh, another Van Manderpoot story. I've not read really? it. Yeah, it's, it's called the, the Higher Things, and it's published in Nova, which is a Harry Harrison sort of magazine book paperback what's it called again uh the higher things it's probably Hmm. not in public domain no it would not but it it's um it's what you can do when you've got a public domain character do you remember who the author was his name is john r pierce who's not somebody i'm super familiar with but he he died in 2002 okay i just want i'm gonna see if i can track down the story sometime and read it Mm -hmm. I mean, one one thing that I noticed about this story, I mean, it's just one line, but it showed, my opie is not the word, the limited imagination in some sense of the author is when when they were talking about romances and then he says, um, when I thought of love, her eyes blazed with such tenderness that it seemed as if I, I, Dixon Wells, were part of those pairs who had made the great romances of the world. Hmm. Heloise and Abelard, Tristan and Isolde, or Cason and Nicolette, I didn't know the third one, but they're all from the same kind of medieval time periods. Like those, I mean, there's great romances of the world of a certain time period. That seemed, I mean, it seemed like a missed opportunity not to like invent something for the future because, you know, this is set a hundred years after like, no, like 80 years after, uh, after the author wrote it or, or pick a different time period. It seemed that's a very Star Trek thing to do, Paul. You know, <laughs> yes, it's, it, but, I, but, it's, but I do like it, all the greats: Isaac Newton and Einstein, and then we get uh, a visit from the guy in the wheelchair. What's his name? Who's Hawking? Not name. Hawking, and then we we get to power Vulcan. But I like that sort of thing because it shows. I mean, I mean, storytelling like this, and especially novel writing, also sort of is a very much the iceberg approach. You build. You build a world, but you don't see much of it. But having that little piece of ice stick out of there, like, yes, yeah. yes, after, after, I mean, the, the world doesn't end with the, with the present. I mean, for example, I mean, unless you, at least, oh, blah, 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 blah. so there, there's a novel called Out in the Black by KB Wagers, and there's a character who does speak in 21st century references, but explained this because there are, a specialist and expert in that time period, but usually a lot in a lot of science fiction, it seems like all the, that the world seemed to end in the 20th century, or and they never have anything new. Star Trek, I appreciate, actually thinks that oh yes, we might actually have new 
books and new music and new things that people would be interested in after mm -hmm. our time period, wouldn't that be cool? At least shows that I, I get, culture is, I is extended. Wait. But, but uh, I, th I thought Star Trek posited a world in which the only types of music were jazz, classical, and Klingon opera. Um, that's right. That's that, well. That's all we hear on the t on the thing. But I believe at least like on Voyager, for example, um, Tom Paris and Harry Kim at least like thirty serials. So it and and shows and uh, things based on them rather than you know, like Dixon Hill or whatnot. So, but <laughs> but but it's so like I mean I didn't know who all Case and Nicolette were when I when I heard the story it's like well who are they i know the other four and so mm -hmm. i looked up it's like oh it's just the same thing it's like it's it seems <laughs> so and, what and you're we, saying we, is you don't have the romance for it yet you you don't have the I, right ideal well, for it and, and we don't and we don't even get a, a sense that dick this is dixon's interest of study so why would he so i mean dixon is kind of a protege of family boots so i don't know i i don't think that that's true i think he is I think he's, I mean, think about how the relationship, again, going back to back to the future, Marty McFly doesn't seem like he's that interested in science. He's interested in girls. He's interested in guitar, right? <laughs> he's he, he, likes, uh, he likes the hot car that, that the doc is working on, right? <laughs> but he's, he, he's not a science guy. And I yeah, think well, that the... Okay. The relationship is is pretty fun, and I, I should point out that there's this is not unique to Weinbaum. Uh, we did a Sophie Wenzel Ellis story. Did you hear that one, uh, Tony? No, I haven't heard that one yet. Okay, so that it's very similar. Let me see if I can bring up the title. Um, well, while I think doing, we'll, yeah, why is doing that? Let me ask you this, Tony. We'll is, pick that. Is, is Dixon? Interested in medieval literature other than in the in the other two stories? I don't, I don't recall know. there being any other references, uh, but but that, 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 that annoys me for the character built world building. Like, okay, so why is he throwing medieval romance references? Well, at well I was also thinking, aren't those all like tragic romances? Yes, yes, they all are. They <laughs> yes, all they are. foreshadowing, well. and the reason yes, it's foreshadowing, but also you know the answer really, Paul. What's the real answer? Yes, it's because Weinbaum's interested in those. Weinbaum's interested in it, right? And, right. Yeah, he is all the characters in here. And he did. Right? He did get me to Google up all Kazan and Nicolette, so he did do his job. <laughs> I, I, I <laughs> can see that point. He's showing off. I mean, it's <laughs> kind of what you do. Um. So the the story I was thinking of is called Creatures of the Light. Uh, you were on that one, Paul, if you remember. Yeah. It. Yep. I um, do. And. And it was about this crazy, um, basically, eugenicist um, who's also inventing all sorts of technological machinery that's designed to, you know, move you around the earth. And also, but it, it was just like pile on, pile on, pile on, pile on. Whereas this is very narrowed, right? We've got actually one inv major invention, and then we've got this side invention um, <laughs> that is on the cover of the magazine. <laughs> right, it's the ideal predator for the urban environment. Um, actually, I was I was just thinking about how um, this this story actually just kind of has like a whole bunch of like extra stuff at the beginning of it that doesn't even really factor into the plot. I think it's it, but, it, it but it's all interesting philosophically. Yes, I don't think it factors into the plot um, as like a it needs to be there to deliver the full thing, but I think it is for reflection why why it's important so 
in the way that the do- uh, the the professor um, gives up on his project, right? Um, because ah, I, uh, it won't need a brain anyways. That's actually kind of like <laughs> the point. Uh, uh, when he holds up the card in front of this this uh, car eating robot, right? That runs on gasoline. It's plugged into electricity right now. But if and when he builds it as an actual full size killing machine. <laughs> <laughs> it will it's attack cars on gas, yeah. because it's a dinosaur. It's primitive, right? <laughs> and it, all you have to do is hold up a picture of a car in front of it, and it goes, "Oh, gasoline!" <laughs> Literally starts crossing the room to try and get get at the thing. All right? It's right? just a card in front of it. Um, and then compare that 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 view of a, a card and somebody pointed at looking at that card its eyes are fixed in a certain sense right its cameras are fixed and it's like a it's like what we would now call a you know an ai object recognition sort of thing and we have this on our cameras our phone cameras now right they can you can put an apple on your desk and you get your camera out and it'll it'll say that that's an apple right it can know that it's an apple because it's been comparing it to a bunch of other things so it knows how to light it better and how to you know um, categorize it and tag it for you. The, the, that's the power of these new smartphones, right? Um, but <laughs> when we have our hero sit down in front of the machine, it he has to have blinders put on his left and right and above so that he doesn't accidentally miss look at something. Right? <laughs> He's just mm-hmm. going to be looking straight ahead, and what does he see? A mirror. And then he thinks of the thing that he wants to idealize, and it appears before him in a mirror and what is this heterosexual young man who's lusty for women he's always going out to uh date the latest uh you know dancers which we it's all put into the story there for a reason what does he see a vision of the perfect woman the perfect girl and it's reflected upon where he came from when he was young he saw visions of what other people thought was the perfect woman by putting her up in photographs. And he also saw her eyes and her nose look like other previous girlfriends. Right. And yet there was nothing about her brain. <laughs> it was nothing. Right. Of, it's all sexual. It, it, he is very wise. Our wine bomb. He knows what he's doing. And it, what's surprising is that it feels so easy and, it's enjoyable, but it's super deep because he knows what he's doing and putting all that stuff there. He's a man. He is all of the characters in these in this story, and he does. We see that in um, the other Weinbaum book we did called Dawn of Flame, right? Yeah. You remember that one, Paul? Yeah. Um, have you read that, Tony? I, I have not. Is that a novel? It is. It's kind of a novel. It's um, uh, it's it's basically. I think it's after a plague in the in the. 2020s <laughs> well there was oh. a couple stories mixed up but yeah that, because there was that and there was the sequel remember there's the black because flame there was, there was, yeah the black flame yeah so it's just like it was a yeah the, it was after a plague and there was uh, these and people it, it's dealing that, with this it, the immortals who were conquering things and yeah so there's this been there's a pair of immortals of i think they're half brother and sister yeah black uh, margo that's right and they take it upon themselves to conquer the world for good but um being immortals um they are sterile and 
uh, our hero sort of encounters them and almost becomes like swept up in that and then doesn't. It's it's a very poignant piece and very smart. And it's not science fiction like, you know, the way As- Asimov puts it together, which is more clinical and cute. It's more... Um, not even like high. It's very, it's very different. It's very um, wise. Is I guess the way to put it. Almost Thoughtful. wistful in a way. Yeah, it, I, I see it, that. It, 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 there's definitely a set. I think I mentioned it's this in the press. There's this sadness to Mar to to Margo and you know her immortality and what she and her half brother want to do. And I mean, and, and they're not even the main characters, which is which, the which is the fun. And indeed. And uh, and our naive hero telling the story, right? Yeah, I I mentioned at the time that it's a very strange point of view to have for the story. Is have have this bumpkin? He's literally teaching us, is what he's doing. <laughs> Weinbaum is, I mean, he taught so many people what science fiction could be, right? He took it from the rough and tumble of the early '30s, um, out of the Hugo Gernsback first amazing efforts. And and said this is this is what it could be, and people people picked that up. I mean, C- Campbell sort of takes it up, and he he narrows it quite a bit, um, and loses a lot of the uh, the charm, I guess. But uh, I'm I'm a big Weinbaum fan, so it, yeah. I, I need to re- read more. I've actually I've read all of his works that are in the public domain because I ju- I listened to that whole mm-hmm. you know audiobook collection on LibriVox. Um, but I don't think I've really read anything else by him. Yeah, Dawn of Flame is also public domain, but I don't think um, it's recognized by LibriVox as such yet. But oh, okay. That, that doesn't mean uh, it won't... Well, it's also not a shorter work, so I haven't read any of his yeah. fuller works. Mm-hmm. Well, he didn't, he didn't write that much, but he wrote a lot for a guy who didn't live very long. Yeah, yeah. I feel like if he'd, if he'd lived longer, he probably would be, he'd be a much, lot more appreciated now. Much bigger giant. I mean, that's kind of what I'm saying. Uh, I was saying about Ray Bradbury in a recent set of tweets is, it, you know, he's not my favorite. Um, but I've read a lot of him. And it's because he's good at what he does. He knows what he's doing. He's genuine. He's enthusiastic. Um, he's he's not interested in the things I'm interested in. So most of the time it... it it does like I'm not wistful and I'm not nostalgic, um, and that's basically his stock and trade, right? But he's got he's got some honest things to say, and then he also has this love and reverence for for poetry and uh, prose, and it shows up again and again in his writing. It's, it's, so even a guy who's kind of like the least political writer I can possibly think of, Ray Bradbury. He's just so sort of out of it, right? He doesn't like cars because and he doesn't <laughs> like planes. Trains are okay, but he'd rather go for a walk, right? He's sort of just incredibly concerned. He has a story called The Pedestrian, which is about a guy who goes for a walk. I was walk actually just thinking about that one. <laughs> menaced by a police car, right? Not even uh, a policeman, a police car. And so he's, he's sort of fearful right. of technology. And what does he and do? He, he writes... Fahrenheit 451, which is, I think, most people would say is very political. And and most people think, you know, it's it's um, about hating hating uh, and burning books and ideas. Actually, it's him being very worried about television. <laughs> That's yeah. actually his motivation, right? 
um, because he's so in love with books and and writing and reading that he he fears the new. And yeah, that's I was say, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess maybe that's why he didn't always consider himself a science fiction writer, or at least he one didn't of the know reasons. Because science, really. I mean, yeah, he, and he, he also was, were a thing, but it didn't know really. It didn't. It wasn't like Heinlein he cared about how they functioned. Right? They were just a, a magic way to get to Mars. And he also just generally didn't like technology. It seems like no, he, he was. I mean, he literally never learned to drive. Living in Los Angeles, that's pretty weird. He never learned how to drive. I didn't know about. No, oh, no. Yeah. And he, I, I think he didn't even fly. He always took the train. He 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 had a lot of. I mean, he wrote a story called "The Small Assassin," which is about his own baby trying to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> it's a crazy guy, right? That's. <laughs> that's a, Wife has a baby, and he thinks that the baby's trying to kill them. That's I always thought that story was interesting because I was like, when I when I was reading it, I was like, this is a creepy story, but this is, would probably right. never work in a visual medium, or at least it would have to be kind of tongue in cheek in a visual medium because visual. If you, it's that's the funny part, right? The image of a homicidal baby would just be kind of funny, <laughs> generally. Although I don't know, I guess they pulled it off for the Stephen King movie Pet Cemetery. I don't know. <laughs> No, yeah, Stephen King's got his own stuff going on, and it's very interesting. But again, he's again not—he's a guy who works for most people. Um, but I've never—I've never been. I, I think that that's what's so cool is you can sort of find people who resonate with with the kind of writing, and when they do a, a good job of it, you you want more because you can see they're revealing truths to you. And I feel that way about Weinbaum is is he makes the um, the wisdom go down very easy. right? We don't hate any, any of the characters in here. No, no, even though Dixon Wells is kind of a jerk, you don't. You definitely don't hate him. I, I would say he's relatable in a way, too. But, um, I mean, uh, Van, Van Manderputz could literally destroy the world if he's not careful. Yeah. <laughs> if, he, if he was just a sort of little more stick with it on some issues, he would literally destroy the planet. With uh, his uh, killing machines. <laughs> by the by, the way, actually, it's it's funny because um, uh, when I kept thinking, you know, was the robot's name is Isaac, and I kept mm-hmm. thinking, oh, that's a reference to Isaac Asimov, haha. <laughs> and then I was like, wait a second, <laughs> this story was written in 1935. Yeah, it proceeds. It's I, I would say it's published until 39. So I guess it's just a neat coincidence. I think it's Newton, Isaac Newton. Um, yeah, yeah, sense. I'm almost certain it's a Newton reference. But uh, he's also remember he's a Jew, and uh, there aren't any Jewish characters in this story, so maybe that was just a a shout out to uh, being being a member of the tribe. Maybe. Um, but that is some. But you know, you really touched on one of the things I really like about these stories is all three of them. They're very funny, and they're. They they seem kind of lighthearted on the surface, but they're all very thoughtful and deal with very very deep issues as well. That's and, uh, that that's literally why I, I'm saying Ray Bradbury is is so popular is because it's not because he somehow hit on you know what the market wanted. It's actually the opposite. He he just had his obsessions, and he happened to be very genuine about it, and that's kind of what people wanted. Right. It, it's just literally he was nostalgic. A lot of people are nostalgic. Reason Jack Finney's popular is because a lot of people are liking that small town vibe. It's, you know, 
it's it's sort of nice to it's a nice way of thinking of reality. It's calm and relaxing and fun. My friend Scott, you know, he he really is a big fan of uh, of the Disney sort of movies like Up and that sort of thing. I'm like, no, too nostalgic for me. Not enough hard hitting cold equations sort of stuff. <laughs> and uh, it's it, if you're not disposed that way, um, you can go to the noir fiction and, and the hard boiled and uh, hard hard SF. And I think uh, what's nice is Weinbaum actually has all that stuff. But it's it's it goes down super easy. So people who are not even in, you know, I mean, you don't have to um, appreciate what he's uh, all the work he, that he put into creating whatever world it is to see that it's a, it's it's well written and easy to easy to take in. Right. The, the, yeah. That that first story that he wrote, um, A Martian Odyssey. It just exemplifies, you know, he put in all this, all this work and it, it's like a Star Trek uh, sort of bridge group of people, right? Everybody's from a different country and they're all on a mission together to Mars. And then they show up, find some aliens and each alien is different, but um, they're so different that nobody had seen aliens as different as these before, right? They were always metaphors, whereas this is like, no, this is, he's kind of trying to, come up with interesting silicon-based life forms and how a bird would think and that sort of thing. Right. They were supposed to, uh, I mean, a lot of people credit that story as being the first one with, like, aliens that actually felt truly alien. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the the aliens from H.G. Wells as the time machine, right? Uh, not the time machine. Um, from uh, War of the Worlds. They are comprehensible. Um and they have their sort of their logic built into them, which is you know it's it's based in threes and that sort of thing, three arms and and they're vampires and it, it's actually based on something that he was thinking about what would happen to people as we evolved, and that's probably why I was thinking of the time machine is that our heads are going to get bigger and bigger and our bodies are going to wither away, and he actually had a story Wells did, in which uh, in the future people will like take in their food through their skin they just go. Like into the kitchen and soak in a hot bath, <laughs> and um, you know, and that's also where we get the idea of these giant gray aliens with huge heads and spindly little bodies, right? Because so we see that with um, the time machine. Uh, sorry, where the worlds? Those aliens are not capable of walking on their own, and yet they're mas- masters of technology, and they don't have their own digestive systems. They consist on human blood. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio. Well, I think we're pretty close to being done anyways, right? I think so. Um, I know yeah, that. Else you want to talk about? Well, uh, the only thing I can think of offhand is I just thought. Uh, I also think maybe the. What do you think is the funniest moment in the story? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 moment that 
I think I, I don't know. There's a lot of great moments, but the probably the one that I think is the funniest is when Van Manderpoots decides he wants to look in the idealizator and think of the ideal man. He thinks it's not working because yeah. he basically just sees an image of himself. <laughs> yes, of course. I, I think I think that that's exactly right. One of the thoughts I had, um, I, it is a very funny scene. Uh, I also thought it was funny when he gets uh, our hero gets a look at what the girl's looking at <laughs> because right. it's the same thing. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, he. <laughs> He's a very lot. heterosexual guy. I, I want to say Weinbaum's super heterosexual. Um, <laughs> not that that's a bad thing. I just think it's a fact. But I did get a flash of, um, he looks in the the uh, mirror for the first time, and what does he see? He sees himself, right? And then, after he sees himself, he sees the ideal. Uh, and it's a woman. Um, and for a lot of people today, <laughs> that's actually how their brains are working, right? They're saying... I want to be a woman. <laughs> a guy looks in this thing and says, I want to not have all these beard hairs. I mm. want to have high cheekbones, or more importantly, I want to have a high voice, and I don't want to have this horrible Adam's apple, because they're looking at the ideal of themselves. Right? Mm. Um, and what, what what's nice is, I think, um, Weinbaum, I mean, he was an animal, just like all of us, right? But what makes us different from most regular animals, <laughs> and I'm not talking about humans, just other kind of um, motive species, mammals and reptiles and all that, <laughs> is is that we're kind of more aware of of our place in reality. At least some of us are. And uh, so when you <laughs> get to intellectualizing what it is we're doing, um you can sort of gain some distance from it and not act as much like our genes want us to. And yet I think that that's the whole point. I mean, you got this really smart guy and what does he do? He creates a machine that gives you the impossible, right? The right. And, and examples he gave was a house and a horse. <laughs> yeah. And I was thinking, what would the ideal horse? Like if you said, Jesse, you look into this mirror and you idealize and you're going to see the perfect horse for you. I'm like, I guess it would have four legs. <laughs> it's, it's shadow facts. <laughs> or, yeah, I mean, <laughs> right? I mean, um, it, it's almost like uh, their Tolkien has this horse fixation. And I know people who are really big into horses. I'm not that into them. I like dogs, but, you know, one dog is much like another to me. They'll have four legs, and they're furry, and they, they lick you, and they bite you, and yeah. they, I'm, you know. I'm more like I'm more into cats and rodents, but I did I did get the I I did get the sense of you know what the perfect house would be, and I know this is a thing, right? This phenomenon people do idealize how, their homes and they build their their own house, you know, and they mm -hmm. uh, figure out how it's all gonna be in the layout and all that stuff. It's because we're, it's where we're gonna spend most of our time, and yet to say that there is the ideal is actually a fundamental error. Right, because right. part of the point of the story is that Indeed. the ideal is also unattainable. But but even so, if it even if it was attainable and it is like in both of the the stories, the one that inspired us to do this one, right? The um Big Malian Spectacles. Mm -hmm. Um he gets the girl after being told that the girl doesn't exist, right? Um and yet she's not the exact same thing. Um 
but he still gets her in a certain right. sense. Um, and here he gets her in a certain sense. Uh, he, lo- he also loses her, which is right. why it's a series. Well, she's not exactly <laughs> the same as what he imagined either. She's just no, really close. She's a little skinnier, right? Not as modest. <laughs> not not wearing the popular cuirass that everybody she should be we- <laughs> he thought she should be wearing. Um, but uh, she's a real person. And right. so to, to say that there is the ideal is to make a mistake. Um, and yet we want things to be better. So he's, he's addressing sort of this contradiction. And I, that's why I think, you know, he's a, he's a great writer because he's, he's talking about real stuff. Yeah. Although I will, I will say like, as funny as I think the story is overall, the ending is a little unsettling because the the poor girl is basically traumatized by her experience. (laughs) But of course there's a dark humor because ironically it's, uh, you know, Dick Dixon. <laughs> that's an example of how selfish Dixon is. Like, like uh, you know, when he finds out that she's been traumatized, all he's really concerned with is whether or not she'll she'll ever like him again. Well, that, he deals with that in the next story, right? <laughs> uh, kind of, yeah. Right. But um, you know, we we can only learn so many lessons at a time, and one like, per actually, month is good from uh, Wonder Stories, I would say. Yeah, actually, that's one thing that um. It, uh, if, if wine, I wonder if Weinbaum had lived, if he would have continued writing more of these stories, because I honestly would have, uh, I would have loved to have more of them. Even <laughs> I get it, I get it. There's a a great appeal to it. Um, I'm glad Philip K. Dick didn't write more than the two Doc Labyrinth stories, because <laughs> I, I I think you can get. It, it's kind of like feeding the audience what they want, right? Right. Um, and and I think that's a bit dangerous. I think it's it's where we get all these endless series and it's where most TV shows come from and endless right. movie series and all that, all that and stuff. Lo- it's nostalgia. It is. And, and I'm not going to lie. I am a very nostalgic person, most but at the are. same time, what's that? Most people are. It's right. that's why, why these guys are so popular. The, the Finneys and the, I mean, Ray Bradbury is a short story writer. His most famous works, uh, Illustrated Man, Martian, uh, Martian Chronicles, and uh, what was the? There's another one. Um, there's three major novels by him. They're not Fahrenheit novels. They're just fix-ups. Well, Fahrenheit 451 is a, no- a proper novel, but it was extended from a short story. <laughs> from yeah, I think it was originally well, a novella. A fireman. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the point is, you know, for a guy who is not famous for writing things that are long, that is what most people want they say mm-hmm. um he's pretty famous as a as a science he's one of the most famous science fiction writers and it's not yeah. for writing those big long novels it's for writing a whole bunch of short stories yeah uh well i really love short stories i mean um you're you're one of the few <laughs> yeah I, I mean uh, uh that's one of the things i like about your show is is uh, that y'all actually talk about short talk about short stories on here um and uh I think it's I think science fiction's uh unique in that I, I think short story I think shorter works actually make up some of the best of what the genre has to offer. Hundred percent. I, I think you know the novella is probably the f- perfect length for for getting most science fiction stories yeah. out there and getting the idea, uh, giving it enough space to walk around the room and see show you how it looks and right and still done character. Oh yeah. But it's a delivery system for ideas, 
right? That's what you, you really got to think of it as a way of viewing reality or understanding reality. Um, if you if you think novels are the way to solve that, that's possible. You know, I think Moby Dick does a pretty good job, but most books are not Moby Dick. <laughs> right. Most books could be a lot shorter. True. And as a Stephen King fan, I know that's true. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, it's, it's a problem. That's why uh, we're, we're going through his short stuff. Uh, or, you know, more importantly, we're going through his early stuff. Those three, We're going to do the last of the first four Bachman books pretty soon. Oh, okay. I actually, I haven't, oddly enough, I haven't really read as much of his earlier famous stuff. Mm. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, but I have been aware of him since I was a kid because he's my mom's favorite writer even before I was born. He's super so, Super popular. It's yeah. it's hard to find somebody who doesn't like him. Um, and I still really like him, but it's mo- especially the Dark Tower series. That's yeah. Uh, I'm not the, I'm not a series guy, so I, I I'm not going there yet. But um, yeah, it's uh, understandable. It's it's pretty long too. Uh, <laughs> my friend Evan Evan Lamp uh, or Lampy is. I mean, not, technically, I read the series over the course of like half my life. Mm-hmm. Is it wrapped up now? I think it is, right? It is. He 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 uh, he finished the story off the seventh book. He did write an eighth book that takes place in the middle somewhere, which I haven't read yet. Uh, but other, but other than that, it was a the, the series was completed. I think I've read maybe five or six of his things on novels, but um, <laughs> I, I I can I can probably go without reading most of them because most of them are getting long. The stand yeah. is too long and right well i mean i love stephen king but there there is a point in almost every one of his books where it drags for a little while <laughs> um i i don't think there's i don't many, think that's though. true of his short stories though no his short sure stories are actually really good that's I'm how i'm pretty sure they're the opposite right they're, that's actually some of the first stuff i read by him um mm-hmm. and the first dark the first two dark tower books which are actually both pretty um you know well the the set draw the second one the drawing of the three is the length of an average novel it's like a little over 300 pages uh but the first book the gunslinger is actually pretty short i think it's only like 200 pages or so and it's actually technically like a fix-up novel mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um a lot of people don't like that one but uh I, i've always liked even that first one in the series but i got again i also have a lot of nostalgia for it because i read mm-hmm. it when i was so young so yeah it's dangerous <laughs> Yeah, actually, we've learned. We uh, probably don't want to get into it now, but we've learned a lot in recent times how dangerous nostalgia really can be. Uh, when it's <laughs> I, when it's I know where you're going when, with that. When people base their lives, you know, a little too much around it, but uh, that's what I was saying. Like, I'm definitely a nostalgic person. I love stuff from my childhood. I collect things, and you know, mm-hmm. uh, I love stuff from the, a lot of things from the past. And yeah, I even love Disney movies. You mentioned that earlier. <laughs> I've actually been on. Watching some Disney stuff I get the lately. appeal, but I but also have, feel the the sugar. <laughs> you you do, and you have to you have to keep you have to keep you have to keep make make sure you keep a, a critical eye on things and and don't idealize things too much. I mean, man, that's part <laughs> of the point of this story too. Is you know yeah. if you if you idealize things too much, you forget about the reality of things. Mm-hmm. You know, Paul mentioned Midnight in Paris earlier. Well, mm-hmm. part of the point of that movie is that like. Um, every period of time had its problems and its issues, and there were have there's always people 
Yeah. That, that, that yearn for, you know, a previous time that they idealize. You know, what's but, so funny. I was thinking about this, like in the last week or so, I was thinking about how, you know, there's all the people on the Twitter, you see their hot takes, right. And they're saying, it's so obvious, blah, blah, blah. And then they, they dump on some person or some group or something. And, and I'm thinking like, how will this look to you in 50 years? Or more importantly, how will it look to your kids when they look back and they see what you said? And they're going to be able to ask grandma or grandpa if they're on the right side of history. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, I was out there like like Biden saying, uh, I was protesting <laughs> in the streets. Um, and then we look back and they're like, no, you weren't. You were actually on the other side of that issue. Um, it's always hard to know whether history will judge you correctly um, as being on the right side of things. But we know a lot of people were on the wrong side in the past. What made them that way? It wasn't because they were just stupider than people are today. That's not what it was. It's because they're sort of not reflective of this vast sweep of history and what everything, they're sort of caught up in the moment, I think. Yeah. Because no matter, history is, underrated as a discipline for everybody to learn yep. and uh and take lessons from i am back temporarily i got okay. a hold of my brother but i can't talk to him right now but yeah he's not doing great anyway Uh-oh. it's for funny i come in right as you're talking politics which is hilarious you're not allowed to talk politics with me you made a rule oh. i made a rule exactly and since the hilarity Oh well, I was just I was just pointing out that nostalgia make kind of makes people forget that you know that there's yes. there's there's always been crappy things going on throughout all of history, and no matter how much you idealize a time in the past, there was still crappiness then too. <laughs> you but, know, yeah, but, but, no, but like, no era is actually specifically perfect. like I'm, I'm thinking like you know I always I, I'm I'm th- I think about these periods of history like there's this. This guy Woodrow Wilson. Everybody just sort of has a general idea of of what he looks like, and uh, anyway, people looking back at might know what he looks like. Or, you know, he's sort of thin and tall, right? Um, and they might know he's sort of involved in World War One. But then, getting down into the nitty gritty, people voted for him. People put him in office. And if you were one of those persons, and we look back, we we think, oh my God, what a monster! Right? It's like, how could you do that? Well, you know, they didn't know. But yeah. history will judge you. And um, what side but, do you want to be on? But that's one be on the right side hind- of history. Be on the that's right one side of, the of the reasons why hindsight is important, though, is because if you, if, if you uh, let the nostalgia overpower you too much, you can't really learn from the past because and, then you, you, you should keep wanting to go back to it instead. And this is why, why I keep calling Weinbaum... Um, Wise is because he knows that hypocrisy is a thing, right? That mm-hmm. people, like he he knows that there are things that are good and things that are bad, um, and there are things that we can fight and things that we can't fight. And yeah, he doesn't seem to dull his enthusiasm. It just seems to make his words a little bit wiser, and maybe I I don't know if that helps it make it easier to swallow as well but um i think it might like people seem to like heavy stuff you know like dark you know the the trend to make the superheroes dark 
Super and Batman, and then Superman Dark. And I'm like, what? <laughs> well, it's, um, fu- it's funny because Marvel went the opposite direction. They yes, they did. They lightened everything everything up. It's funny you mentioned that though. I actually tend to like the darker DC stuff better, but <laughs> it, I, I'm I'm not but so much into preference. yeah. I'm not so much into the movies and stuff. But I I think about how you know <laughs> about how the X Men in the '80s reading the comics they were dealing with some dark stuff, right? Very yeah. interesting and very heavyweight. And it, uh, when I think about the movies, I don't think about those things. I sort of just remember the big action sequences and not really rem- remember the plots. But uh, Deadpool works for me. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's got that sort of cynical uh, take on it, and yet he's still kicking. <laughs> right. Well... <laughs> I mean, actually, for now, I'm not sure what I was going to say. Um, <laughs> we probably said all that needs to be said. Well, yeah, I suppose so. But uh, I will say that I think that's one of the reasons why Weinbaum's stories still hold up, even though, you know, they're, they're, they're still a, a little dated. You can tell they were not written today, generally. But they they're thoughtful enough and they're uh, innovative enough that they that it's still easy to connect with them even as a modern reader. I mean, it amazes no, me not sometimes. Hard to read. Not hard it, to yeah, read. It, it, it didn't age as. I mean, aside from the social relations, it didn't age as much as I thought it might. There's think, timelessness to his. I think those social section. relations that you're worried about are just. Are just our fancy of the moment rather than our fancy of forever, because mm. uh, you had it. I know you. We're not supposed to go into politics, but you had a tweet. I was. I was like, words have no meaning now. <laughs> words like, have no meaning now. <laughs> it was like there. Somebody tweeted. There was an infinite number of genders or something like what? <laughs> no, there isn't. There's not even an infinite number of people. How can there be an infinite number of genders? It's like words have no meaning now. I, what, what that is, it's an expression of solidarity. It's not an expression of It's an expression of denying that it's a binary. Yeah, but see, that's a hyperbole. It's not science, right? It's like no, no, no. There, there, there is some hyperbole to it, but there is there is something to be said for for uh, puncturing puncturing uh, simpl- oversimplifications, which hurt people. <laughs> but yeah. if you oversimplification in the other direction, you know, but not as. But not as much. But but sometimes nuance gets lost. Yes. Well, you you did one that was similarly political about uh, um, this is not pizza, and I said don't gatekeep Paul. Oh y- yes, yeah. Y- you mean that that horrible thing out of Iowa? It was a it was a frosting covered pizza with it, it was fruit, fruit loops, loops on covered it. Covered pizza. That was just that is that is just. <laughs> Okay, okay, I, I am mostly taking the piss on it, but still. Your uh, other one here was some somebody. Was it a cookie talk- pizza or was it like a regular pizza? No, I think it was, it was a regular, regular pizza. pizza. It was a regular pizza that had Fruit Loops on it. <laughs> and, and I think the crust was frosting or something. But... Oh, no, no, there was frosting on it too, but it's a, it's just like, that's not pizza. <laughs> Chuck don't, don't, don't be don't be smirch pizza with that. Or, but I, I had to look up. <laughs> I, I don't realist. have a hard. 
Yeah, I believe I have to say this again, but there are infinite genders, including no gender at all. This is obvious. I thought that that was like a piss take, and I'm still not sure it isn't. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Paul, what did you say in response to that? A <laughs> gender is a spectrum. Uh, yeah, let me see if I can find it. That's what I said. Gender is a spectrum. Yeah, maybe. And that's true. Gen- gen- gender and sexuality are... Sp- or not even not even a single not even a single dimensional spectrum. They're, it's a multi-dimensional spectrum. It's it's a lot more complicated than people want to think. People want to have the nice box of men are men, women are women, and, and fuzzy creatures from Alpha Centauri, fuzzy creatures from Alpha Centauri. <laughs> but it's not as simple as that. It's it's because they're nostalgic for that. <laughs> That's they, 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 they they are nostalgic for for prior restrictive and and uh, stratified gender roles. Yes. Well, yeah, but oh, there yeah. Also, there's also some biology involved. Yeah, but the biology is a lot more complicated than than these bleepwits want to admit. <laughs> because it's you because say fuck it on Twitter, but you won't say it on the podcast. Oh, okay, I'll say it on the way. It, it, biology, since I have a degree in biology, is a lot more complicated <laughs> yeah, when yeah. it comes to reproduction and to genes and the expression of genes than these fuckwits ever want to admit in their lives. <laughs> I, I mean, um, everything's more complicated than people want to admit. That's been my experience. That's true, but when 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 it starts denying the reality of people and the real and the ability of people to express themselves as they are and as they see themselves, then we have a problem. When they say, "No, you yeah. can't be a woman. You're a you have to be a man." That's 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 gatekeeping of the worst order. That's <laughs> worse than the pizza kind. <laughs> worse than the pizza kind. Yes. I said, uh, I said um, in a direct message to Evan, I said, can't believe I have to say this again. Words have no meaning. <laughs> no, no, you're horrible. Um, well, um, <laughs> and then I awful. said, I guess it's LGBTQIA2S infinity symbol. <laughs> now, <laughs> Chuck Tingle says. Be nice. <laughs> but that, that's my point is I, I like I, I had to look up who Chuck Tingle was. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> you don't know who Chuck Tingle is? I didn't know. I had heard the name, but I didn't know that he wrote or whoever it is wrote um, like sex with dinosaur books or whatever. Um, but I, 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 when I, somebody I, says infinite genders. I, I think that they're playing piss take. And if they're not, then, no, no, it's Chuck, then Chuck, that's Chuck, something Chuck else. It's a funny story of how. How the how the said puppies basically brought him to pro- him. He we don't know who actually who Chuck Tingle really is. There have been theories. I've had theories of my own, but I don't think they're true. Could be. But they got they kind of got to pro- Chuck Tingle got brought to prominence by the puppies. But, it, but Chuck Tingle is actually a very cool person, whoever they are. <laughs> I actually li- I actually listened to their uh, Hugo Award winning story. Uh, Which, uh, Actually, I listened to the whole the whole trilogy. It was technically just the first one, which was uh, uh, well. I don't actually. I guess it it didn't win, but it was it, it was nominated. No, it was just no, it was just final. Yeah, it didn't win. Um, I'll off off the look look it up. But I also see the thing is is um, oh yes, is the Space Raptor Butt Trilogy. I think is what it's called. Okay. Yeah, but uh, he also wrote um s- stories inspired by his Hugo nomination. Um that I also listened to, which are interesting, which were um, pounded in the butt by my Hugo award nomination. Yeah. <laughs> and, and 
pounded in the butt by by Hugo Award loss, uh, I think is what they were, what they were called. But the thing is, is he mixes in some weirdly amidst all the ridiculous sex and over over the top stuff. There, there was some surprisingly thoughtful elements too. Like in the second story, he actually he actually has a character that's obviously based on you know, what Vox Day and 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 comments on the whole sad puppy situation and how and how he doesn't really approve of their philosophy, even though even though they got him the nomination, et cetera. Right, et cetera. Because they because they thought because they were tr- they thought they were trying to piss take on the Hugos, and it turned out no, Chuck Tingle's actually cool. There is a, I mean, I mean, the the current running theory is that Chuck Tingle is written by one or more people in the science fiction community, but we don't know who that is. <laughs> I my, my my theory for the longest while was Mary Robinette Kowal, but she's told me so. no. No, I'm no, but, sure she's, but, 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 but she's but she's written a romance and she's written erotica under another name, so it would not be out of the question. So well mm, there there yeah. is a certain self-awareness to Chuck Tingle's works, whoever they are. Yeah. Mm. So well I, I is there a, a gender pronoun thing in the no. In the yeah, it doesn't it just says world's greatest author. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Because Chuck Tingle is a pseudonym, and they're not—they're not—they're not, not going to put pronouns on there because I would give away who a bit no, of who Chuck they, who they is are. pretty much a guy name. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, but you know, Tingle, but pretty you know much a fake it. name. Yeah, but <laughs> it's a pseudonym. Oh my god! It could be an AI running writing Chuck Tingle for all we know. You know, kind of like kind of like true names or any. You reference that one a lot. I was just doing some show notes. <laughs> I, I can, uh, do reference that one a lot. But, yeah. you know, it's a good story. <laughs> I haven't read it. it. It's like 1980, so it's not even yeah, it's, recent. It's, 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 it's uh, before the cutoff or after the cutoff. Sad story. <laughs> sad story. So do we have any more thing more to say about no. this story? I think we're done. <laughs> okay. I can. You can tell that this is a podcast that I, I'm on because of, because of all the tangents. <laughs> uh, oh, well, like we all have tangents on our regular podcast. Oh, come on! You have you heard us? That that's a good point. If you listen to all you, you know to your uh, you know post post uh, editing. Yeah, I added a big one in for you on uh, when I just finished a six twenty. I think has like half an hour of um, us waiting for a couple of people to show up and. I read a poem. Uh, that, oh, and and Paul calls uh, um, H.P. Lovecraft a raging racist, and I correct him and say uh, he wasn't raging; he was just racist. And uh, yeah, Paul was yeah, using it like an adjective, is what my argument was, rather like like uh, extreme <laughs> or something like that, <laughs> because raging is like running around the house hitting people and breaking things and something, you know. He, that would he would have he would have hurt his hand if he did that. No, he was like he was very intellectual about it, right? And yeah, there is one poem where he was a kid, but it you know he was he was like thirteen or something. Well, have you ever read uh, the horror at Red Hook? Because that yes. is like yeah, yes, it, it, that's yes, one of the most yes, even it, xenophobic it, it, things I've ever read. Yeah, yes, no, 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 it's not that bad. Um, I Tristan and recently. I agreed uh, agreed together. They uh, that you're wrong, Jesse. Well, you remember. Yeah, but, no, I don't remember that, but um, but it's it's not narrow. It's not really that racist, I think. 
I mean, it, it has racism in it for sure. But that's, well, I, I, I mean, compared I, I, to other stuff he's written, it's not that racist. <laughs> it's just, I mostly just, just thought it was xenophobic. Like, he could, t- it was just so, it was just based so heavily on how scared he was of foreigners. Uh, it's uh, not scared. It's, it, 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 it's it, like, the, he's got a very specific, he's got a very, well, not even, no. I mean, it's basically, he, he's seeing it like a kind of contamination, right? It's, it's not even like, um, like, uh, He's he's seen as like sullying uh, a nice society, and and it's not even like um, they're going to interpret that as as being scary though. In that story, uh, yeah, I mean, he he, there's (laughs) contempt for it, but I don't think it's it. That's not the horror, right? The horror is actually like um, it's kind of like what's happening in those places. And we never really see that. And I mean, it's so ridiculous. The guy is afraid of tall buildings. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just I just remember there was a passage that specifically described wandering through the street and hearing, yeah. hearing all the foreign voices, and it just oh, yeah. it sounded like you. It sounded it sounded like it was supposed to be. You like also a have to description. Like his his his, his pe- that period of time, it comes out of pain. Like he was trying to get work there, and like the best job he could get um, was like writing for a furniture company, and he got fired from that. Um, and there's all these people all around him who can work, and he can't. He can't get a good job. Um, and also, also, so he started blaming others instead. <laughs> you know, it's actually it's like when, most of the time when somebody is upset it's because there's some sort of pain right yeah um, one of the things that happened to him right before that right before he moved to new york is he actually was offered the editorship of weird tales and he turned it down he was so in into he was like it was the wrong time but he just like turned it down flat even though that would have been like a, a real paycheck and working on something that actually he would have been really good at right Mm-hmm. And then he's living in New York and his wife is taking care of him and he was trying to make the best of it, but he couldn't like he ended up selling his furniture right? because he couldn't afford to live there. And his wife had to move away and he didn't want to move there. It was, you know, wanted to be a, he's like he's a very traumatized person. Well, yeah, but I mean, just because there's a reason someone's being kind of being a jerk doesn't mean that they're not still a a jerk. <laughs> well, in some I, I way, hear, although I hear he was nice to the you're people that he knew. About, like, people overstate it so much. Like, um, <laughs> I mean, they do, over, they do overstate it, but I'm just, uh, you well, know, what I mean by overstating it is like they, like there was a show that, uh, what's uh, our opinions are corrected on Lovecraft, and they just they had a lot of facts wrong, but they were saying things like he was a gatekeeper. That's just not true. He wasn't the editor of Weird Tales, like they said, right? He didn't, when people... Right, he didn't really have any power over that. Not, he was never punching down at people who were actual people. He was punching down at sort of what he thought of as groups. And he's putting it in his fiction. He literally never punched anybody, right? Um, he had suicidal thoughts, but they were not, uh, you know, go out in school shooting kind of thoughts. Right. And... And, you know, what they did on Lovecraft Country is they said, my dad made me memorize 
this poem um, and he holds up the book that it's supposed to be in. That poem didn't come out until the 80s, right? Yes, he used those racist words. He used them all the time in his fiction. But he didn't go around saying them to people, right? It's it's like... We're, well, uh, well apparently know, he did in his letters, from no, what no. I understand. But those but, weren't published, of course. That's right. Is, is like, but like in in person, if if like he went and saw uh, black performers on stage, and he was never he he actually has characters who are who are racist in his stories, um, and they use the pejorative, um, and then he has less racist characters who just use the standard, right? Um, so he he has these race uh, racist things inside of him, and he's obsessed with it. But he's not raging like he's not in the KKK. He's not he's not you know joining Hitler to burn Jews or anything like that. It's 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 very hard to understand because we're not there. But um, you know Robert E. Howard was a lot a lot worse on blacks in that you know he writes a letter to Lovecraft saying you know I saw these blacks driving through Texas and they wouldn't pull pull over for a, a white man who was trying to pass them, so I gave it to them right. And, you know, scolded them out because they, the other people didn't have Texas plates or something. And he thought that that. And then uh, Lovecraft says, good on you, right? But Lovecraft never even learned to drive. I, I'm not sure what point you're getting at exactly. Is, 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 he's kind of like Ray Bradbury, right? Like he's, no, he's, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that, can, that, can, that Lovecraft and Ray Bradbury is a fair comparison. Ray, no. Ray Bradbury is not a ra- ra- raging racist like Lovecraft was. Ra- Ray Bradbury did not write anything like the horror at Red Hook. No, he didn't. He didn't. But he also didn't grow up at the same time and in the same place, uh, right? No, no. I, I'm, 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 I, I don't think you can like. Oh, that's the way he was raised. Yeah, because that almost sounds like you're excusing him. It's like saying, "Oh, we don't have to worry about. We don't. Have, we don't have to deal with Lovecraft's racism because that's what." Do you think it's more dangerous, over overstating or understating? Well, I think that depends on the situation. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's so, no you've got an enemy. He, you can overstate his his danger, or you can understate his danger. Which is more dangerous? I'm not calling Lovecraft my enemy here. No, no, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not talking about Lovecraft. I'm just saying in general. I mean, I think it's. I think saying he's a raging racist is more accurate than saying that he wasn't racist. But I mean, both are. <laughs> Uh, no. Both are extreme. Oh, no, let, let's polar- set, set both are on the extreme. Let's imagine we're playing a game of civilization, and you've got to manufacture a certain number of armies to protect your city, right? And you've got a neighboring city or, or barbarians or whatever, and you have an idea of how many troops they have. Which do you think is more dangerous for you as your city, to overestimate their forces or to underestimate their forces? If we're talking about a video game, underestimating the forces will get my city destroyed. I mean, and that's me, what about yeah. overestimating your for, or their forces? Because well, you have then to, you, you wind up with that, that, you then you go. wind up with extra units that you that maybe you have to disband afterwards. But at least you've dealt with the, they dealt so with which, the which is more which is more dangerous. Underestimating in this situation, I think underestimating would be more dangerous. Yeah. Falls into my trap, mm-hmm. which they're equally dangerous. <laughs> Accurately estimating is what we all should be doing all the time, right? But but that's not always possible. Of course there's, not. The, 
there's of lim- course. there's limit there's limited information there's you limited bandwidth if you said there's danger from uh you know like an asteroid hitting the earth and you overestimate that that's and, and, a mistake. and if you underestimate that that's a mistake so but, I mean, but so sometimes being overly prepared for something can be a a good thing <laughs> well um let's uh, let's just expand it out from the uh <laughs> From the particular uh, no, instance, like of be, an astronaut, and, and then say, um, "Are we prepared for World War Three? Right? What What's the trap you can fall into there? Well, we well, can blow up the world seventy times over, <laughs> exterminate life seventy times over. Right? That's a mistake. Wouldn't it be better to know exactly what's going on?" Well, yeah, but there's some situations where, like, you know, uh, where you want to take safety precautions, even if something might not ever happen. Of course, of course. That's what I I mean by over-preparing. Think of it as insurance, right? Do you want to be underinsured or overinsured? Neither. You want to be perfectly insured, right? And this is this is important because you don't want to spend too much money on insurance and redundant systems, right? And too much time worrying about it. Is it, what? How much should we worry about? We want to worry only as much as necessary and not any more. But we have limited time, and we have so when when you when you overestimate a threat, you're making a mistake. When you underestimate a threat, and you're making a mistake. The only solution is to better estimate. So if you use hyperbolic language to describe scientific situations, you're making a mistake. If you you ignore the science entirely, that's a mistake too, right? It's it's trying to get a better, accurate picture of it. So it's not that he isn't racist. It's that if you use the word raging, you get a picture. That picture does not match the reality. Right. You mean okay. H.P. Lovecraft wasn't frothing at the mouth constantly? <laughs> Correct. And and yet, <laughs> and yet, the the I mean, he was worried about all sorts of weird things. But um, people don't like um people don't uh, think. I think they should think more about this. Edgar Allan Poe would have been on the wrong side of the Civil War. He was not interested in in freeing slaves at all. Right. And nobody is upset about that. They every once in a while somebody else will get a little upset that he married his thirteen-year-old cousin. <laughs> I'm guessing maybe that's because it doesn't come out in his fiction as much as it does with Lovecraft. And even with Lovecraft, it only comes out in a certain percentage of his fiction. Well, no, yeah, it, I, yeah, it, yeah, I, 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 th- I think, I, th- I, th- I think Tony has the point there. I mean, Poe's Poe's beliefs on the Civil War don't permeate his fiction in a way that Lovecraft's ra- the Civil War hasn't happened. Right. He's not it's not in this. It's not in the mix. But that doesn't mean he was any less racist. No, it doesn't. But, but I mean, that's just a matter of that's, well, that's a matter like, of perception. Racist, you yeah, would be that, that, that's more putting that, a very yeah. strange picture in the world, don't you think? What was that? What was that? I if you hold a raging racist, you would be putting a very strange picture in the world of him because that it doesn't seem like it's possible based on what we know about him. But the more you look at it, the more you realize, oh, yes, he has one black character in one story. He seems to be focused on other things, right? (laughs) 
But if you if you can find the is that nadir, that's the highest point, or is that the lowest point? Nadir is nadir. the lowest point. Right. If you can find the the highest point for uh, racism the in the United States, what period of time is it? And a lot of people would say it's today. And they would be absolutely 100% wrong. <laughs> right? Well, well it defines, I, I mean, I'm going to have to go. And I get it. Because it's a, yeah, but, well, oh, I think we're going to have to stop soon. <laughs> yeah, because, because the question is, what are, you, what are you talking about? Are you talking about racism as in human bondage? Are you talking racism as an individual action? Are you talking about racism as in structural racism? That's... So, answer, say, so is this the most racist time? It depends racism. on what kind of racism you're talking about. I would say popular racism. I, the, 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 I mean, I mean, I mean. Part of the problem is a lot of people say, "Oh, America isn't racist oh, because we're, we're, we don't have slavery." Is as you you just saying the trap of oversimplification? Mm-hmm. Except in this, like, oh, there's no slavery, therefore there's no racism, and that's <laughs> I don't think that I, is part of my I language. Anybody who's reasonable would Bullshit. say it. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, but I see I see that take all the time. Well, and now yeah. I'm going to have to depart again. I get it. I get so it. I came and now I have to depart. By the way, the answer would be when H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard were uh, young. <laughs> anyway, have a good night again, gentlemen. <laughs> you too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Biden's a lot less racist than Wilson was. And Wilson is claiming to be a progressive, right? Right. He was not. I mean, he, he was the one who, who like sort of went the other direction. And it, what's funny is Biden's, Biden's actually not a, a elitist. <laughs> he wants to be, but he, like all the other people look down on him, right? Because he didn't go to the Ivy League. It's, uh, it, it, so yes, we are in a nadir of American racism, despite the hype. <laughs> oh, well... well. I mean, I think you're right, but I mean, there's still a lot that can be improved. <laughs> oh, of course, of course, we still have we still have more to go. But I mean, I, I do think we are still better. We are still better off than we were in the past. Although, you know, in some I, I could argue that things have gotten worse in the last five years. But I think it's all stuff that was already there that we just didn't know about. Well, yeah, I mean, like if you if you're looking at people in prison, uh, it looks really really bad, right? But if you're looking at a popular sentiment, it's it's really really good, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's it just it's just like um, the 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 people that it's just that the people who uh, you know do do have more kind of racist philosophies and ways of life are have just become have kind of come out in the spotlight a bit more. Well, there's a, a lot of spotlights looking for them too, right? Right. But I mean, I would, yeah, I would argue that they are still in the minority of, of people in the U.S. At oh, least. Yeah. No, but, <laughs> but still, like, this is literally, like, you know, uh, the, younger, the younger you are, the less, least racist you will be, right? <laughs> and it's, well, I, I hope so. I mean, it's, it's well, certainly, it, it, these when, are, when I look, when I look at the younger generations, it, you know, generations younger than me, I do actually think that might be the case. Oh yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. It's uh, they don't they don't buy that shit. <laughs> um, well, I mean, let's hope so. <laughs> that's that's the problem is not at the bottom. The problem's at the top. Uh, well, yeah, I won't argue with that. <laughs> yeah, what do you think of Ray Bradbury? Because I'm. 
I'm I like his stuff and I've read a lot of it, but I, I he's not anywhere close to my top. Well, read a Weinbaum or a Dick or Lovecraft. You know, I think he might be up for a reappraisal for me because I actually haven't read anything of his in in a long time, except for uh, uh, not too long ago I reread Fahrenheit four fifty one. Yeah, yeah, uh, which I still count as a as a personal favorite. It's a really uh, good book. The Martian Chronicles I count as a personal favorite, but I want to reread it. I will say that I do have a lot of short stories. Is I think it's better. Yeah. You shouldn't read a fix up, you know, back to back to back. It's it's just it's it sort of all gets muddled. I think you have to. It's like well, one meal at a time, you know. Right, but uh, you know, fittingly, I have a lot of nostalgia for Ray Bradbury, and <laughs> he, 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 yeah, <laughs> and he is one of the reasons that I got into science fiction. Uh, him and Asimov were kind of like the two writers that really, well, and uh, arguably uh, Madeline uh, Langle with the Wrinkle in Time books. Yeah, apparently. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I, the, the three I, authors are most responsible for getting me into science fiction. I would my say six, uh, my grade six report card said, uh, "Like Jesse's really into a wrinkle in time." And then I I uh, sort of looked into it again when that movie came out, recent movie adaptation. Mm-hmm. Like, man, this sounds like shit. <laughs> nah. Well, I, so I'm like very worried about going back and looking at it. Those are up for a reappraisal for me too, but yeah. I just know that a wrinkle in time kind of blew my mind when I first read it. When oh, I was like, really oh, into you know, it. I was only like a ten or eleven when I read it. So yeah, yeah, it's amazing how uh, books can do that, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I think there's a lot of danger in rereading and rereading and rereading because, um, you know, it's it's opportunity cost. You're losing the opportunity to read something you haven't read before. Right, and uh, and I'm trying. You know, I've been having trouble reading lately, as I think I might have mentioned to you mm. uh, in in a text conversation. I'm not sure, um, but I've been having trouble reading lately. Um, audiobooks have been easier for me. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, there's there's I do like to reread stuff, especially I love listening to an audiobook that I that I for something I read in the past. But uh, you know, there's so much stuff out there I haven't read yet that I that I really want to experience too. So I, I try not to. Go too heavy on the rereads. Yeah, because uh, like I used to worry when I started this podcast. Oh, we're gonna run out. We're gonna run out of stuff. <laughs> you know, you're gonna read all the, all the, you know, the fifty or sixty classics, and then you won't have any more show. You got to spread them out. Uh, the problem with that theory is it's shit. It's almost there's an infinite. It feels like there's an infinite number of books that are really really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just it, you, if you only limit yourself to you know books that are published in 1984, yeah, there's a a limited number. But if you if you allow that uh, bracket to widen, um, it seems to get you know like there's way less time than there is less uh, good books to read. Oh, definitely. The more and more I learn about science fiction, because you know I, I I love nonfiction about science fiction. I probably. I, I, maybe I've even read more of that in the last few years mm-hmm. than I have actual science fiction. Oh yeah, I mean that's half the half the important thing is to find out what's good to read. That's why yeah. worrying about spoilers is like, if the book was actually good, you can't spoil it. It's just not possible. Right. Well, when it comes I to science fiction, the- I don't worry about spoilers as as much, just because I want to. F- I keep wanting to find out more about it. When when m- one of my friends from when I was a kid came over and also because i know i can't ever read everything 
he, I, he said, I just went and saw the new Star Wars movie. And I said, oh, how was it? And he says, oh, uh, they killed off Han Solo. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and he never, ever, ever thought that that would be like a... He just, he, he thinks that was interesting, right? Yeah. And so he wants to... This is how we should, like, we should treat ideas like um, they're... Uh, they're not scarce resources because they aren't what are scarce are good ideas, <laughs> right? Really interesting, subtle takes are, are important. What's not, I, I, I've been doing this series of, um, I rewatched next generation and I rewatched deep space nine. I'm rewatching Voyager. And I found out I missed some episodes of deep space nine and Voyager. Um, and, and, uh, I need to get back to to going through Voyager. I've n- I'd never seen that series all the way. Through. I remembered it sort of being weak as weak ass shit. Um, it's a <laughs> fuck ton better than the modern Star Treks. Oh my god! But more importantly, um, I, I, I like I, I like Felix a lot more than I did uh, back then because I think his story is is actually it's interesting and he's different from other Star Trek characters. Right. Um, and what's what's good is um, in because in the intervening period, you know, thirty years, nineteen ninety seven is where I'm at now. Was how many years ago is that? Uh, Twenty twenty four years. I've read a lot of books. I've seen a lot of other movies and TV shows, and r- more importantly, read a lot of short stories and and novels and stuff. And so I'm like, oh, this is this is a riff on that. And one of the one I was reviewing last night was um, some episode, I think it's called Distant Origin. Yeah. And it's basically, it starts with a couple of aliens, scientists, saying our species was born on the other side of the galaxy. Um, and uh, this is proof of that. And they have a body from Voyager. Like, they got left behind on some planet, I guess. Um, and so they go to the Vo- Voyager episode, you know, the ship, and they have a cloaking device for the walking around on the ship and observing the people. And they're saying that this scientist has a theory uh, as to, you know, they were actually from Earth. These aliens are from Earth. And I'm like, oh, I know this. This is Robert J. Sawyer's novel um, from 1992 <laughs> that they're ripping off. <laughs> and they did a really good job. It's called Farseer. Yeah. And, and I'm like, oh. Star Trek does that a lot. <laughs> but they do it because it's a good idea, right? I mean, uh, they, 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 they are good at taking those ideas and putting them in a visual medium, yeah. And, and it, it's, is it an identical ripoff? No, it's different. But more importantly, it's idea-based rather than, like, emotion-based. It's a science fiction show. It's not supposed to be about like crying. <laughs> the crying <laughs> happen, and there's a great episode like the one before it, where the doctor makes a holographic family, and they're perfect, like on Wandavision or uh, some other, you know, I Love Lucy show. It's like a perfect happy comedy family, um, and then. Uh, Balana says, this is all fake. These aren't. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've seen that episode. That's like, that's, that's she, really one of the best tweaks, episodes of the series. Sit by making random stuff happens and the, the sun becomes like a 
death metal Klingon music fan and the wife is like run off her feet and the daughter's angry about being demoted. <laughs> the doctor gets upset and then the girl gets injured in a, in a Parisi square accident and dies and the doctor can't handle it. And so he turns the program off and pretends like everything is fine. And then, you know, realizes that that's not the case. And he goes and turns it back on and watches her die and tells her, yeah, you're dying. And it's like, that is a really poignant piece. Wonderfully done. It has a little bit of interesting elements of, you know, what matters when everything's fictional. These are holographic characters. They are not humans. But this is how we deal with other people, too. You don't seem real to me. You're just a voice on the other end of a Skype call. <laughs> but somehow well, I... could I'm... put my camera on. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw your DVD shelf or... Yeah. DVD shelf there. Um, but the the point the point is like that that's still good science fiction because I got my records behind me here. <laughs> oh yeah, they're there. Wow, you have a lot of work ahead of you of ripping. <laughs> yeah, um, no, I, I just listen to them. <laughs> it's a lot of ripping. <laughs> I, I I've got my. I'll turn my camera on. You can see my entire collection of not. It's not my entire collection of books. Um, yeah, I actually didn't show you any of my bookshelves. I got like figure I got like four bookshelves here. Here is my there's my bookshelves, but that's not that's not important. Um these, this and this, that's 16 terabytes of movies and TV shows. Oh wow. And and uh that's pulp magazines, audiobooks, more SFF audio websites. I think this says movies, but I don't think it is anymore. I migrated them over here. That's it's like my giant VHS collection that I ripped and DVDs. I never got into those. Um, I had laser discs, but I never ripped any of those because it was. Oh, I guess I did. I ripped them to VHS. <laughs> I never. Uh, I never got into uh, Blu-rays. Smart wisely. Okay, I got some Blu-rays. <laughs> I, I watched a guy on YouTube <laughs> talking about how uh, a couple of years ago he made a video where people are saying, "When is uh, physical media going to end?" And he's like, "It's never going to end." And then he just did a recent one saying, uh, "2020 was peak." <laughs> and the reason he was he was citing is that you know the Blu-ray discs don't add more features. And remember when DVDs first came out, they were right. like, this is the way to make people buy it again, right? Is mm -hmm. you just get endless extras, like get director commentary, actor commentary, making ofs, right? And I kind of loved all that. Of course, right? But now what he got on Netflix, it's just the bare movie, right? And yeah, not even generally. like alternate cuts or anything. They they do occasionally have making like behind the scenes stuff, but they always put them as like a completely separate feature. Yep, yep. like but it's a completely you, separate entity. If you want to see the uh, bloopers for Next Generation, you can go to the go to YouTube. You don't go to the 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 uh, Blu-rays anymore, right? Because right. they're really neglecting that. And um, well, that's the, they're doing that because people because people don't buy as much physical media, so they feel less incentive to make that stuff. But it's like a vicious cycle. Also going all in on uh, streaming, right? Like apparently mm -hmm. Warner Brothers just fired all their um, DVD and 
laser not laser disc people the uh, blu-ray people and now they're like they're they're going to have a warner streaming plus or whatever it's going to be called and well that's hbo max i guess i i that that's that's basically hbo max (laughs) and disney plus and apple and all that there's so many of them well there's a lot of great things about streaming and, and digitizing you know like uh you know, it's great that people can actually, you know, uh, save save on space like that and not have to, you know, mm-hmm. have to build up so many this, things. This, uh, save on space, yeah. This yeah. these two um, these it two this drives, hard drives, took uh, took up you know those amount of bookshelves and more of VHS tapes. I believe and it. it. It's no joke. It's like it. And more importantly, the instant. You know, there's no, uh, you know, spooling up or rewinding, and there's no um, fucking FBI warnings that take five minutes and are unskippable. <laughs> right. I mean, uh, so I don't know. I kind of appreciate both uh, both sides of it because I do also. I mean, I got a lot of physical stuff because that's I the do nostalgic like, part of you, though. That's the it, dangerous part. It's nostalgia, but I do like the 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 tactile. I do like I get it. the I quality get it. of things. Um, but at the same time, I appreciate that we don't have to do that if we don't want to. And, uh, you know, I, there's some people that will, like, look look down on those who don't have physical media. And I don't get that. I'm like, there's nothing. That's, they're just, there's nothing wrong with that either. They're, they, <laughs> if I had infinite that's the space. Way, that's the way of the future. Cash infinite housing for all those infinite discs and it was infinitely uh, accessible at the flip of a switch and somebody would put it away and alphabetically i would totally go for it but we given that you know we have limited time on the planet some people are saying transhumanism like you fucking idiot <laughs> nobody's living forever nobody right. it ain't happening not anytime soon not in the next hundred lifetimes there's no evidence for it. No evidence at all. So all we can do is make our best judgments and not try to overestimate, not try to underestimate, but accurately estimate. It's hard. Yeah. And, and by the way, even as someone who really likes uh, physical media, even I went through the process um, yeah. uh, uh, before I moved um to North Carolina, I went through the process of copying all of my my Burt CDs sure. to, to my computer because yep. I was like, "Well, these aren't—they're certainly not any better sound quality than MP3s because they were basically made from MP3s anyway, and et cetera, et cetera." So unless I had like some sort of, I have some Burt CDs because there's an emotional connection. They were made to, for me by someone special to me. It's dangerous. I, but, I have that problem but, too. But I mean, I only maybe have maybe a, a dozen of those compared to, you know, I had probably close to a hundred burnt CDs or more at one point. Um, so I guess this is this is the only thing that should be on your shelf. One of these, <laughs> and it's there to have, remind you that you have limited I, time. Yeah, I have a I have a skull lamp. There you go. That's dra- even more efficient. Two dragons. Uh, the, the dragons aren't as efficient. Uh, that just warns you. The dragons warn you not to be too acquisitive of your horde, <laughs> lest you become like one of them. That's a good reminder. <laughs> the skull is to remind you that you don't have time to right. manage your horde. 
But it, it, it's natural, right? It's natural to want to be like a chipmunk and hoard all that stuff in your cave. Um, there's a reason why they call it a man cave, right? Yeah. And not but a even person I, cave. <laughs> right. But even I've gotten rid of, you know, stuff. You in have the to. So, have you know. Uh, at some point, I guess over the last year, I've probably collected more things than even I have in a while. Just, I guess, just That's as a good. distraction, but... You know, no. that's that's how they get you, right? That's the yeah. Um, well, my friend uh, Will, who was not with us today, he was talking about um, those uh, the ones you get at the I don't know the store, and it's like a little. It's not a bobblehead, but basically that's what it the is. Funko Pops. Funko Pops. That's yeah. right. Right. And you see one. Oh, that's cute. I I need that. I like that character. And then I'll just get this one. And then of course you end up with a shelf of forty things that. Right. Are completely fucking useless other than to say, aw. Right? But what's the difference between looking at a picture of one of those and having one on your desk? Well, it says something about me. And I'm saying, yeah, it tells us that you're wasting your life and incorrect. This is what you should do if, if you get excited. Get like a little Lego guy and you make him. Look, I wanted to make <laughs> I wanted to make a uh, spring heel jack, so I did. Right? And eventually this will go into a bin and you get recycled and all those parts will be used again. I've used this head many times, right? <laughs> but it's it's dangerous like to co- collect um, paintings or books or whatever. You have right. to you have to really struggle with it because it uh, I get it. It's it's uh like I, I have physical copies of things I have digital copies of, right? I have a digital copy of this, but this is more fun to show somebody. Right. And I get it. So but especially with like music or or uh audiobooks, it doesn't really make sense to have a physical copy because it's just not as quickly accessible. Right. Same with a movie, right? I love the I love posters. I love seeing the new art that they make for a DVD. You know, so hire some great artist to do a new cover of the thing or whatever. Usually, the ones they do for Aliens fucking suck. But um, but as a a general piece, right? Physically removing that from the shelf and like, I have a DVD player. I I do not use it. I I just put on a stick. And then plug that in. And there's no nostalgia. There's no like reverence for the object. It's more about mm-hmm. the intellectual experience of ex- appreciating the film. And yet we have to have physical, some sort of physical connection. Cause if you have it just as a, uh, if you just have access to streaming, what you really have is nothing. Well, yeah. Uh, I do. <laughs> I do. Um, that's why I've also, you know, downloaded a lot of stuff over Happy. over the years, too. Um, like uh, that's the one. That's one thing I haven't really been able to do. Like uh, with, uh, a, if you buy like a digital movie from Amazon, as far as I can tell, you, you can't nothing. actually download it. No, you you own nothing. Yeah, what you've so, done is is give yourself permission to mislabel and lose access to it. So that, that is taking a bigger amount than they did on your rental. That that is so that is one that is one line I, I don't want I, I can't cross because I'm like if if I'm going to pay money to to buy something I need to at least be able to download it I need to be able to access it without the internet oh. to be worth buying. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was I there was that video I watched I should probably just find the 
old YouTube link. Um, the guy was saying that, like, you know, that's the problem with owning physical media. There's this problem, and then there's the problem of owning the um, digital. Is they they all have different formats, right? And they don't the files don't line up. And if even if you keep them in the in the same folder. Um, when you double click on it, it says this media needs to be updated so that you need a new security key to access it, right? Like <laughs> that's, you're not free from, you know, you can't put that in your pocket and carry it anywhere in the world. You have to ha have an internet connection and one that's authorized by your operating system, which has been compromised by the corporations. So you really have nothing. <laughs> which is depressing. But also, uh, let me see if I can find that video. Huh. That's a that's a pretty good movie. I started watching called uh, Zero Charisma. Have you heard of it? I know. I haven't heard of that one. Uh, I'll send you the link to it. Um, it's on Prime. Uh, it's about a sort of asshole dungeon master who um, who loses one of his player characters. Uh, you know, persons mm -hmm. who's playing a player character and wants to fill the gap in the table. And the guy he picks has, uh, like, he's actually kind of nice and people like him. <laughs> and he can't dominate him in the same way he does. And so it's like a, cr a personal crisis sort of movie. So, so far. <laughs> that's, that's the way I would describe what's happening. Okay. Ah, here it is. The Future of Physical Media. Guy with... Endless okay, rows behind him. <laughs> All right, I think I'm wondering if I've actually uh, seen that video advertised on my YouTube feed at some point, but I don't think I've watched it. But I feel like I've seen that I've seen that title before. I've never I've never watched this guy before, but it popped up in the recommendeds, and I'm I'm interested in it because it's a problem I've had to deal with. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you are having have had to and will have to deal with. Because uh, yeah, spending time with old people, what do you notice? They have a lot of stuff they have to get rid of all of a sudden, right? <laughs> How did that happen? Well, acquiring things over a lifetime. And what happens to it all? Yeah. Usually, it's not like the person who's dealing with it is, um, is uh, as reverential as, uh, <laughs> as the person who collected it over all those years, right? Right. So it could end up in the landfill which is hard to think about and might want to avoid thinking about it. <laughs> but, um, well, you know, I mean, I wouldn't object to, you know, like if something happened to me and I had to leave all my stuff to someone, I certainly wouldn't object to, to them selling it. But I mean, eventually that's not going to be an option. But even so, like, sell eventually they won't be worth anything. That's right. But also, <laughs> you know, like if, if you say, Hey Jesse, you can have all my stuff. I'm like, no, thank you. That's a lot of work. All that cat, like, Trying to figure out what's valuable and what's not valuable. What do most people do? They just take it to a dealer and say, "You want any of this stuff?" Yeah, my uh, comic I book store, at a record store for about a year, and there you uh, go. That, that, that's yeah, how we got. Show a lot up, of and they say, "Can I have some money for this?" And they say, "No, no, sorry." And they say, "Oh, here, just keep it, anyways." Right? Yeah. The next stop is the landfill. Um, you should check out this uh, Planet Side Chats, my friend uh, Will. He's not on today, but. I've heard him. Um, yeah, did you see this? Um, his YouTube video. Uh, no, no, I haven't yeah, he, yet. He did this and basically sits down for, 
an hour and a half and talks about some comics all straight up. Not comics, some um, pulp magazines. Okay. Planet, Planet Stories. Well, actually, I started following him on Twitter, but uh, so it's a YouTube podcast because uh, no, no, this is like his podcast is coming out in um, oh, August, I haven't started yet, but he's he's I mean, that's the plan. He's started recording, but he hasn't uh put out any, but he did this thing sort of as a surprise, and I watched the whole thing all the way through. Okay, I'll, I'll I'll watch it when I get a chance, yeah. Um and uh, actually, I was going to ask: Did you ever get a chance to listen to uh, the star? My recording of the Star Mouse. No, I didn't. But I was thinking about that because there was a recent. I think I tweeted about Frederick Brown recently, um, and um, so uh, basically, I don't listen to anything unless it's going to be on the podcast. So if it Fair was scheduled, enough. I would do it, right? But then, <laughs> because uh, otherwise, I I won't be able, like I because I'm doing two podcasts a week, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I can't really do anything else. I can listen to some political podcasts and a few like other, like Evan's podcast on uh, Lovecraft and mm-hmm. Luminous. That's a good one. Um, let me just type in Frederick Brown. I did get the file and I did listen to like the first second of it, but I. <laughs> is it two words or one star mouse? It's the star mouse, and it's two and it's three words altogether. Yeah. Right. No, I'm just uh, doing a search of my own tweets mm-hmm. here. It's not coming up. Frederick Brown. I did tweet about Frederick Brown recently. Well, rem- Frederick is sp- is spelled differently I too. Know. Okay. F R E D I C F R E D R I C. Yeah. Weird. And then Frederick Pohl. God damn. They spell. <laughs> oh, I January finished, 18th. I just finished his uh, autobiography recently. Oh yes, this is the one. Um, this is what I was I was tweeting about. Whose autobiography? Frederick Pohl. Oh, um, that's didn't he do two? Well, he did the way the future was, right. and then and then, he, blog, and, I and then he he basically elaborated on that book through his blog. Right. Actually. Um, I really enjoyed the book, but I w- it was hurt a little bit by my having read so much of his blog already. Right, right. Was that he, an audio book or was that a uh, regular? Actually a regular book. It's an actual old library copy that I got uh, from a library sale. See, that'd be a good audio book to do. It would uh, be. I'm not a, I'm not a huge Brown, uh, Frederick, uh, Frederick Pohl fan. Um, I sort of started him the wrong way. I started with his stuff in the 80s. Um, and he was really into psychology then or psychiatry. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't care about psychiatry. Psychiatry is kind of bullshit. I mean, it's kind of interesting too, but like, what was those? Uh, there was a couple of, there's a series of the Heechee books. Right. I read the first one gateway, which I did yeah, really gateway. enjoy gateway. Yeah. It was gateway. It was interesting, but I'm like, why, why is this guy mentally disturbed? I'm not mentally disturbed. Why am I reading about this mentally disturbed guy? And then I read another one. Well, I'm mentally disturbed. <laughs> Maybe that's why I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but another one uh, I read by him was it was the same thing. Like it was, it was. Uh, I think it's the first Hitchi book that he has this interaction with a psychiatrist. Yeah, that's that's in Gateway. Mm-hmm. Uh, AI, right? AI psychiatrist. And mm-hmm. then another one I, re- I, I guess I reviewed it. Uh, let's see. Frederick Paul. Well, it was later. 
Paul. Well, I went through kind of a Frederick Paul kick for a little while when I was reading through his blog, and then I finally listened to the audiobooks for Gateway and for um, uh, of the space, the, the space merchants. Space so Merchant is amazing. Yeah, those are the only two novels of his I've read, but I really enjoyed them, and I've really enjoyed all the stories, almost all of the stories of his I've read. Um, and I enjoyed his biography, autobiography, too. But that, that's I the extent to, of it. I used to do this for the website a lot. I don't <laughs> do this anymore. Um, I would pick an author, and then I'd find everything audio available. And I think I used those a yeah. lot when I was first starting to find stuff. And I also like made art for them for some reason. Uh, my brain was uh, this needs art, but um, I would usually listen to everything that's up here that's available. Um, and yeah, I actually really like him, but I don't like, I guess his his later novels is what it is. Okay, I haven't read any of those, so I can't say. No, that's what I mean. Like I'm talking about the Heechee book. Yeah. I, oh well, I liked that one, but I have, but I haven't read any of the others. And honestly, I, I'm just going by my memory of whether I liked it now. <laughs> but I might have reviewed it positively, but I was also a lot uh, less picky, I think. Well, I mean, imagine the more and more that you read, probably the more discerning yeah. you become. Ref- I, really, uh, you can just, if you just read Edgar Allan Poe for his like less famous stuff, like I read, what was it? Uh, William Wilson. It's not anything anybody reads, right? You've heard of it, maybe. I actually haven't even heard of it. <laughs> right. Maybe you've heard and of I, it. But everybody's read... own like the complete Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> Poe self back there. So um, technically I must have read the title at some point, but I don't remember it. But reading the title doesn't make you say, Oh, good, right? And right. also you you look at it, oh it's oh, it's quite thick. <laughs> and you say, Oh, I I like his short one, like the black cat, or uh, you know, what's the other one? Uh, you can read in like seven minutes. Right? <laughs> like, okay, I'll read those. Oh, like what? like uh, the um the Telltale Heart. Yeah, like that, right? And actually Telltale Heart is a piece of crap compared to like and that's funny, right? Because it's it's Poe. You think, oh no, that's a big story. Um, but actually, like William Wilson is really good. It's very, very subtle. It's not really science fiction. It's not really fantasy exactly. It's a little more like Borges, which is a good way of selling it, I guess. But basically, it's about a guy who kills himself, um, and he he is mentally ill, and he he there's a doppelganger who has the same name as him who goes to the same school as him who follows him around his old life and fucks things up. And at the end of the, it's kind of like fight club as well. Like it's really <laughs> fucked up. It's really interesting. Pretty interesting. Yeah. It is really interesting. We got a show coming out on it at some point. Let me oh, look. Well, well, I'll listen to it then. You'll like, uh, that's the thing is with a title like William Wilson, you're not going to go, Oh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> Yeah, so that is, uh, let's see. I just finished Colossus, the Forbin Project. That's a great book. Great book. The editing on that. You got Great God Pan coming, Between Planets by Heinlein, and then uh, William Wilson. Okay. Oh, maybe uh, The Drowned World and then William Wilson. The Drowned World, that one I've read. Yeah, it's actually. okay. I'm not a huge Ballard fan. Uh, I went through a period where I read a whole bunch, a whole, a good ch- a chunk of Ballard. Uh, I don't know. I quite liked it. I I I, I think it. 
I've always found like new new wave science fiction kind of interesting, and um, but the, I will say that I think I liked uh, his short fiction better than I, I liked the Drowned World. Drowned World, but I still thought it was pretty interesting. Just um, getting you know it, it having such a bleak perspective would have been yeah. pretty unique for its time. Seems like it. Seems like it. It's I I I felt like maybe I didn't mention it in the show. I don't remember, but felt like. Um, Who's the guy who wrote uh, the the trusty from the tool room? He's a, a Neville shoot. Felt okay. like a little Neville shooty, except Neville shoots are more of a straight shooter. <laughs> okay, I'm not familiar with uh, Neville shoot. Oh, you never read an? Uh, he he has like an end of the world novel that's kind of famous. Okay, um, but he he also wrote like a lot of things that became movies. Um, he was like an engineer. His most famous book is. Oh, maybe a town like Alice, which is oh, uh, on the beach. You, you read that or something? Uh, I haven't read that, but I've 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 heard a lot about it and I've seen parts of the movie. Yeah, there's a movie. There's also a miniseries, um, and it's basically an end of the world movie, right? They go to New Zealand or Australia, I think, to avoid the radiation for a while. <laughs> um, but he he wrote a ton of books, and they're actually all quite interesting. Uh, mostly, yeah, I've heard on the beach is very good. Oh, it's very well done. Absolutely, it's it's very bleak and also touching. Well done. Um, and the, you know, one of the oh, cats got a, came in. Got a black cat. There you go. Actually, the, our other cat came in earlier for a little while, but that didn't have the camera on. What's the uh, what's your cat the cat's name? This is Coleman. Coleman. <laughs> I named him after Ornette Coleman. <laughs> I just I think that's um good color color based. Anthracite, the formal name. <laughs> that's cute. He's a he's a real friendly cat. He's popular he's with cat. all of our friends and family because he's like he's like almost friendly like a dog. He just loves everybody. He just wants attention and play all the time. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some they really do have their own personalities, don't they? Yep. It's almost um, like they're they're thinking about stuff. <laughs> oh, I think animals <laughs> are a just lot robots. <laughs> I think animals are a lot smarter than than people give them credit for. We just I just don't think we can communicate with them on their level really. They don't have hands. They, they also don't have hands, yes. It really makes things tough. Yeah. When they want to grab something, they do it with their mouth. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, actually, I, I need to get going soon because uh, I still have to work early in the morning. But uh, uh, oh but... god, you got to work too much. <laughs> working on Sunday, working on Monday. Well, actually, we'll see. Uh, in my caregiving job, I, it, I'm on this two week schedule where I work mm-hmm. every 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 Thursday and every Tuesday, and then every, every other. Saturday through Monday. Oh, so okay. every every other weekend, I've got a stretch of four days in a row that I work. Mm. Well, I guess <sighs> things could be worse. It, we can they could no work. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. No, I consider myself lucky that I that I have um, that I, I'm actually doing okay financially. Your commute so. is only ten minutes. You said right for that yeah. job, anyways. Yeah. Well, all all the stuff, uh, all the and all the work I do for, um, I also do some extra work for uh, my girlfriend's uh, stepdad's real estate management company, and that's all <laughs> a lot right of around. Step, 
step. Uh, well, that's why step, we moved here to North Carolina was uh, to work for her, basically work for her step. I seem, to, I seem to think there's a lot of podcast people in North Carolina for some reason. I think there are actually. But. <laughs> what, what's uh, in the what's in the cables that make it so attractive for the podcast people? Not in the water. I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but um, I'm getting distracted by my cat now. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, uh, around, uh, around when do you plan on having this episode out? Uh, it's going to be a while. Um, okay. Let me just count the weeks here. Okay. So I was, was going to say, I might try to get the episode that you recorded with me out around the same time. Well, whenever. 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. I, I, I just don't want to miss it. Uh, okay. 14, 15, 16, 17. <laughs> All right. Well, if I if I actually get on, if I actually get on, twenty five, twenty six, twenty seven, twenty eight, twenty nine weeks from now. Oh, okay. <laughs> Six um, months. So you guys have a good backlog of stuff recorded. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, if 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 I actually get on top of things, then I will have our our the episode you recorded with me out before that. But you know, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's not like they're super timely, right? We're talking about old stuff from 1968 and right. 1935 and 1970 and yep. yeah, yeah. So uh, we got the Mad King coming up on next next Sunday. That's by Edgar Rice Burroughs. It's a Prisoner of Zender ripoff. Looking forward to that. Crystal Crypt. See, that's another King. author. I've actually never read anything by Edgar Rice Burroughs yet. He's good. He's really good. I know. One day, especially uh, a lot of the uh, his uh, you know John Carter books. They're all that's, most of those are in the public domain. So they sure are. I'll definitely get to those sometime. First one's really good. I I didn't read past the first one of any of his books, but <laughs> all of the ones I read are they're really good. Even like the sort of more obscure ones, they're very well written. Um. They're not super, super deep, but you like reading them. Right. Uh, well, not, I mean, not everything has to be deep. No, not everything has to be deep, but <laughs> some things do need to be deep. Yeah, got to have a healthy percentage. That's right. <laughs> We're going to do Gulliver of Mars, which is probably the book that he ripped off to do A Princess of Mars. It's from 1905, I think. Oh, I've heard of that, yeah. Yeah. It also has another title, but I just processed that book recently. And then another Heinlein, and then a Jack Vance. I've, I'm not a huge Jack Vance reader, but I, I hear I should read more. So. I, I've been intrigued by some of the things I've heard about Jack Vance, but I haven't mm -hmm. read him yet either. Although I've got at least one of his audiobooks. He seems kind of fantasy-based, and I'm more of a, a science fiction guy. Oh, so, just a second. I'll do the explanation. I had to take my headphones out because Coleman got all tangled up in them. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> What's your other cat's name? Lexi Lou. Lexi Lou, uh, related to Lexi Luther? No. <laughs> um, is that a comic book character? Yeah, Lex Lex Luther. Oh, okay. No, <laughs> I, I never thought of that. Ironically, I, <laughs> despite being a DC reader. Um, no, her name was already Lexi when we adopted uh -huh. her, and Gretchen just kind of added the the Lou for alliteration. She just, sure. she just thought it sounded catchy. Yep, um, 
That's why they yeah. named him Lex 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 Luther as well. <laughs> uh, what was Lois Lane? Right, they're all like that. That's that's true. There's Clark a lot of alliteration. Kent. All yeah. the and all the ones you know, the one I like them at least, yeah. Um, but uh, in the in the um, Marvel universe, the names are also really good. Oh yeah, there you go. That's a picture of Lexi anyway. It's good. Very happy. <laughs> um, uh, you know about uh, like characters like Bruce Banner, right? And yeah, yeah. Them. Um, but the best one is uh, Tony Stark. Did you hear my theory about Tony Stark and why his name makes a lot of sense? No. Oh, it's awesome. Um, I think we got it from uh, there's a, a, a planets collide. Uh, it's, I think it's when worlds collide. A novel and also a couple movie adaptations. Um, it's basically the story of Superman's planet. It's it gets hit and explodes, right? And they send people off, including Superman, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so Tony Stark. To, there's a character named Tony in the book, and uh, somebody pointed out that Tony is an old-fashioned vocab word for expensive, hmm. which. I didn't know, but at the time, everybody would have known, right? And what's Tony Stark mean? It means expensive, naked. Hmm. When Iron Man, who's Iron Man when he wears the suit, not when he's secret identity, he has no secret identity, right? When he's not wearing his his suit, he's expensive. (laughs) Because he... He's rich! Okay, okay, that's funny. (laughs) It is funny, and uh, <laughs> and it, what's funny is it like Peter Parker is just following a very basic pattern, right? Bruce Banner following a very basic pattern, but Tony Stark is like changing it up a bit, and they do they did spend some time like in the room trying to figure out what these characters should be called, and that's why they're so iconic. Uh, and I'm wondering, think, thinking about what the uh, main secret meaning behind uh, Bruce Wayne might be, or something. Uh, he's, uh, they're both first names, right? Yeah. He has no, uh, last name. And what's funny is because he's, is that because referenced him being an orphan? It's a good question. Uh, what's funny is also is that the, the first, uh, Batman is actually a complete lift, hundred percent lift from another story of the shadow. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, like like panel by panel, it's a ripoff. Beat by beat, it's a ripoff. But his backstory, Batman's backstory, is actually a Zorro ripoff. <laughs> Zorro has a Batcave. He rides a black horse. He wears a mask. He's a rich guy by day, and he fights for the the poor people. Oh, that makes sense. It it is really interesting. It's like everything's a lift. Everything yeah. from something else. Yeah, that's if you really dig down. That's the thing. It's like no matter how original something seems, there's something else that was they that, just back that, influ- that influenced years. it. That's right. And I, I call it a rip off, call it a lift. It doesn't matter as long as you're ripping off from the best. You don't rip off the shit from 50 years ago. You rip off the best from 50 years ago. Right. That's the way to do it. I need to actually listen to some old shadow radio dramas. I'd probably enjoy those. <laughs> Okay, um, you know, have you heard uh, Red Panda Adventures? No, uh, this is a really good podcast series um, out of Canada. It's way more consistent because it's one guy wrote it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and he also voices some of the characters. Um, it's like a family operation. Um, basically, his wife is one of the. He actually he is he is the main superhero. He's called Red Panda, <laughs> uh, but he's like an old fashioned shadow kind of figure. Um, and his wife in real life is his sidekick. Um, but he's a really good writer, and so. Yeah. And, and what's really cool also is, is this it starts, like an audio drama podcast? It's an audio drama series, okay. and it's like really long. Um, just t- type in uh, Dakota Ring Theater. Um, and he also has another oh, series. Oh, not Red Panda? That, well, Red Panda will come up, but that's uh, Dakota that's Ring. Part of Ring. It. Okay. Dakota Ring Theater is for two different, two main shows. Um, and both of them are finished, so they're complete. But the uh, Dakota Ring... Uh, the Red Panda adventures start in the 1930s and go all the way through the 30s to the end of World War II. And this is like contemporary, but they're set in that period and set in Toronto, which makes it a little different hmm. where he lives, right? And then he's got another series called um, uh, Blackjack Justice, which is set in the States. Um, and he has two different actors to do those two characters. But the, well, that one's really well done. It has a dueling narration of what's happening. So there's the girl and the guy. And he tells part of the story. And then she tells the the rest of the story. And you see sort of how they see the world differently. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's a, black, it's a private detective agency sort of one. And it's not like progressive over time. So it's quite different. Uh, but both of them are really well done and super addictive. That sounds pretty cool. It is, and they're uh, like half hour long. Um, I guess it's not. I couldn't. I didn't see it in um, Apple Podcasts. Yeah, it's in there. You just have to get the spelling right on something, I, I, unless they've okay. taken it up for some reason. Let me just search. Okay. Decoder. Well, because there's a podcast called Decoder Ring, but it's something else. Oh, that one right there. It's. Well, that's oh well. I spelled theater differently. Yeah, they spelled a R E. Yeah. Um. Well, I'm still not seeing it. Four hundred twenty-six episodes, yo. Hmm. It should be decoder d e c d e c o d e r. Yeah. Maybe it's not of it. Might not be available through Apple Podcasts. It is. I mean, it always um, was. I know that it's. I'll just try downloading. Well, it right maybe now. I should look up Red Panda. That might come up. Yeah, it's it downloading super fast. It's still not coming up for me. That's weird. I'll send you uh, a link. Okay. Um, I'll get should... and then I'll get it figured out from there. Yeah. <laughs> Here it comes. That's that's a okay, link to thank you. episode, but um, it's very hard to find a writer who's really good um, at producing such a long extended thing um, and who's able to manage it almost like a business. Um He's a theater guy. He, okay. He, he, that's where he got his skills is doing like actual theatrical performances of, you know, plays and stuff. And all the actors are like his friends from the, from the theater. 
and he would get get him in and record like for a day the next six months of shows. He would write for six months, and then they'd do a whole bunch of shows in a row, and then he would edit them up over the year. Crazy. Hmm. It's very efficient. <laughs> that sounds pretty impressive. <laughs> I'm very, I'm very impressed with the work he did, and it's a superhero show. It's right. not just, it's just like, uh, you know, but he has like consistent villains, and ah, it's very. Very well done. I, it was, it was, it's not new. It's like, say, 13 years ago or something like that. Oh, okay. But he's, he's still active. He's not producing uh, as much because I think he, um, he's like doing novels and stuff now. Oh, cool. Yeah. But he, I still see him tweeting about his, uh, he's doing listen alongs or whatever. Okie dokie. I guess we're pretty much close to done, huh? Uh, yeah, I gotta, I gotta try to wind down and go to bed soon. But, right. um, but I really enjoyed talking with you. <laughs> but that's what we do: talk about old books. I appreciate you letting me, uh, letting me on the show. <laughs> I'm, come on, it's just hard to find time for that works for everybody. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Sorry, sorry you had to wait for me, but I appreciate it. No problem. It was, um, it's just unfortunate. I know Will really wanted to be on, but it sounds like he's having some, he just got married recently and, uh, his oh. wife sounds like his wife has some mental illness issues, which a lot of people do. Um, yeah. and he's not, he's not the most stable guy on the planet either. I, that seems that, to be me. That's, that's kind of where me and my girlfriend are basically. Yeah. I think, you know, a lot of people are saying it's, you know, under COVID things are getting worse. For me, it's almost exactly the same. Almost yeah. nothing is different except I don't commute down the street to go to work. <laughs> That's about the. I mean, yeah. I don't. I haven't. I. I. Uh, there was a time I didn't go to the comics shop for a few weeks, right? And then they opened things back up. Uh, they stopped making comics for a few weeks, a few months. I don't know. That was really weird. I just started. Actually, I've just speaking of collecting. I'm. I've just started. Um, I actually, for the first time, like ever, I actually subscribed um, to some uh, current comic series. What are you getting? Um, I'm getting. Uh, um, I'm really big into uh, all the the ladies of DC, so I'm getting uh, uh, both the current Harley Quinn series and Catwoman, uh, and uh, Wonder Woman. I'm not a superhero guy. I don't. I haven't been a superhero guy since I was a, you know, late '70s kid. I was more like even then. I was like Battlestar Galactica comic and Conan. Into it's, Conan. I, it's funny because I've probably gotten I've gotten a lot more into superhero comics in the last few years than than I've ever have been before. In in the in the early to mid 2000s, I got really into indie comics, mm. which uh, mm-hmm. I Me would. St- which I'm still into, but they're just a lot harder to get a hold of now. I was really lucky to, when I was going to the College of Charleston, I was really lucky to have a really cool comic book store right around the corner from where I lived, where they really were passionate about all you know independent comics and carried yeah. all of them. I used to work across from the one I still go to, like like every day, you know, eight hours a day, right across the street from them, and. Uh, so I never really stopped going, but um, I, my tastes are very limited now. I like get 
just a few. And then I try new things, but I'm very, I, I'm not willing to, basically I follow writers. Mm-hmm. I don't even try and follow uh, characters at all. There's one I get the Edgar Allan Poe Snifter of Fear. Uh, it's pretty good because it's riffs on Edgar Allan Poe stuff. Oh, cool. Yeah, but other than that, I just follow like the same writers and and then I'll try a few things, but I'm not I'm not heavily invested in Marvel at all, or I don't think I get DC. Yeah. Basically, I, every once in a while, there's a new series. Yeah, I've never really been into Marvel as much, except for when I really liked the X-Men when I was a kid. X-Men was amazing. New yeah. Mutants, right? Um, 80s, I guess. But we'll see. I won't be able to keep it up for forever because uh, I start now, when I, once I started actually looking into. Now that I'm actually finding out more about subscribing and trying to collect comic books and looking into everything that's going on just in DC right now, I'm like, mm-hmm. this is there. This is confusing and overwhelming. Oh yeah. <laughs> so you have to narrow it. You have you really have to. Yeah. So uh, if I want to read any more than those series I mentioned, I would. I'm probably going to have to go with uh, like the DC Universe service. Uh, well, they call it. They call it too much. You won't have time. Who who has time to read all the? I I, well, I have I, so I, many comics I can't read because I over over buy. Well, that's what I'm saying. That uh, if you get that subscription, you just pretty much read whatever they have. You don't have to buy it all. But it's another like a, streaming it's a service, service. Another streaming service. Except for you comics. Just, I know, but we got what we got to do. We always have to do is we we need to be more judgy. So that we can yeah. pick fewer things, and and yet you want to be open to new stuff. But like, Joe Hill is not Stephen King. He's not as good. He has some <laughs> good stuff, but he's just not as good as his dad. And Neil Gaiman's really him, good, yeah. but he's not really doing that much comics. So right. And if it says Neil Gaiman's the Sandman and he didn't write it, don't read it. <laughs> it's not good enough. It really isn't. <laughs> I still haven't read any of the CMA comics. That's something else I need to read. It starts really rough. It, you, the first volume is basically really bad. And then the second volume is like, oh, wait. But he started something there. Yeah. Um, and it really does pay off later. I uh, believe but it. You really don't even want to read the first volume. It's just not good. Art's not good. And the okay. stories. he didn't know what he was doing yet. And then right. eventually he figured it out and he became himself. Well, that can happen with the. That can happen a lot. <laughs> yeah. Especially but, uh, comics and TV shows. That's true, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't treat TV shows very seriously. Because most of them are... You know, if you don't know who the writer is, it's a writer's room. I mean, to be honest, I actually... Uh, well, I've always been a big animation buff. So I've always watched a lot of cartoons. But I, 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 I never used to watch a whole lot of live-action TV shows... Um, until honestly, probably the last like 10 years, um, when, you know, prestige TV has kind of become a a bigger thing. And there's been a lot more TV that I've gotten into than there has been before. Um, but you know, it's still TV and it still has its own issues. So (laughs) a lot of British stuff is worth watching from the old days. Like, yes, minister. When I was a kid, if Scooby-Doo wasn't on, I couldn't. I'm like, this fucking sucks. I, uh, but now I look at Yes Minister, I'm like, my God, this is the funniest thing ever. 
I like British comedy a lot. They're very um, good at it. I was a- actually in the inter- the discussion episode I did with um, Ethereal Delusions. We geek out a little bit about um, uh, Matt Berry and the mm. IT crowd and the Mighty mm, Boosh. IT crowd. Yeah. Um, it's super rewatchable, too, which is I just watched not- the series all the way through for it's- the first time. Did you watch the other one that's on Netflix called that's a Matt Berry show? Toast of um, London. Toast of London, yeah. Yeah. It's good. It's good. I like it. It's it's, it's a little hit and miss, but overall I think it's pretty funny. It I, works. I, I really like Matt Berry as a performer, and he's also a really good musician and songwriter, believe it. I believe it. I yeah. believe it. And they're not comedy albums. I believe it. Yeah. Um he's he's, he's uh He's someone who didn't go by on his good looks. He's somebody who got by on his innate personality and talent. Yeah. Right? He's not like a... Well, uh, he was... I found out he wasn't even ever really... It was never really part of his plans to become an actor. I believe it. He just kind of fell into it because like, he was actually performing as kind of a comedy, a comedic musician. And uh, the two guys from the Mighty Boosh saw him. And, no, sorry. Sorry, the... Gar- the guy, f- I think it was actually the guy from Garth Marenghi, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, um, that saw him, and they were like, "Hey, why don't you open for our show? Uh, you know, for our live show." And then later, they they wrote a part for him for the series Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, which was actually his first real acting job. Um, and like, they even had to actually like, um, they had to really push for actually um, him being on the show since he was a newcomer, because like. Uh, the channel producing the show kind of wanted them to put someone a little more well-known in there because mm-hmm. none of them were really that well-known. Mm-hmm. I and mean, even Richard Iowati, who was on that show, wasn't that mm-hmm. well-known at the time. Um, but, but they really pushed for him being on there. And uh, uh, are you listening to Mr. Jim yeah. Moon's podcasts, the hypnagoria shows? Uh, I've only listened to like a couple. He's I've really, really good with this stuff. Yeah. He's got, he did a show on Garth Marenghi's dark place, made me watch it. Oh, I'll have um, to listen to that. I love yeah, that show. But he's super good at like he he's it seems like he's less critical than me. I think he's just more diplomatic. Mm-hmm. But he picks good stuff, right? Like when he, and he's, he's he does all sorts of uh, he's like a a podcasting machine and it doesn't it seems so easy but he does so much. It's Yeah. He's one of the two podcasts I, you know, give money to every month. And the other one I kind of resent. <laughs> I only subscribed because they were going to do some Guy de Maupassant, and that was like five years ago, right? I still enjoy their show, but they they don't have, like, he's just a connoisseur, whereas they're like actors, is what Mm -hmm. I think of them as. They're like, oh, we like this. This is fun. What's what's Um, the other one? Oh, it's uh, HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Oh, okay. I haven't heard any of that one. It's they just started with all of H.P. Lovecraft's stuff for free and talking about it. And the thing that they do that's kind of weird is is they just basically do story summaries, but they they have a nice rapport. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know you follow them on their journey. But if you wanted to know uh, what a story is about, they they cover that. And I did a really <laughs> funny joke. They just did uh, they're way past Lovecraft now because they ran out of material right. years ago. They don't really even cover Lovecraft anymore, which is hilarious because the title is H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. But they um, they just did Candide uh, by Voltaire, which is a really good book. Very, very, very funny. That's still one I need to read, too. 
So many of them, right? That's supposed and to be like one of the great dark comedies of literature. It is right? super funny. And I, I, I just, they just had a, they said, we're going to do a part five on this. Um, uh, you know, as a wrap up. And I said, this was a real half ass series uh, as a tweet. And I thought, should I put a, a little uh, winky face? But I didn't. I'm proud I didn't because it sounds like criticism, but there's a character in there who has one of half of her buttocks eaten off. Oh, cannibals. Okay. So real half-ass series. Ha ha ha. <laughs> well, that's that's the great thing about reading old stuff, and they do. You get a real like, oh, that sounds really good. I want to read that book, you know. And then, oh, good. I'm glad I don't have to read this book because they they cover a lot of this stuff. And even if their takes are wrong, you still get the content of what the material was. It's it's a good reading guide. Hmm. Well, that, that sounds good because there's still a lot of Lovecraft I haven't read yet. It's, uh, that's, um, I, do like, I do like most of what I read, most of what I've read by him, despite my comments earlier. <laughs> uh, listen, we live in a time when those uh, those words are hateful and hurtful. And they were hateful and hurtful back then, too, on purpose. But um, he's he, his feelings are genuine. Right. He isn't faking it to be popular. No. He literally thought that th- this shit was real. And he was wrong about it. He should have known, but he couldn't because he was taught it very young. His parents were racist. Yeah. His aunts were racist. He had a lot of trauma. And he, you know, when you're in pain, what do you do? You lash out. You express it in a bad way. Well, I hear that his, his some of his negative opinions soften a little bit in later years so i wonder sort of of. some yeah and also just some of them (laughs) no no it's more like i do wonder if maybe if he had lived longer that maybe he would have softened a bit more we all want we all want the redemption right we want somebody to see the error of their ways um he he had he was working it all out in his own head and that's kind of dangerous but that's what we all do as well but what's nice is he doesn't lie to you. He he is working on the same themes over and over and over again. And if you look at it closely enough, you can see like it's it's all on the surface. My friend Evan has a podcast called 100 Pages at a Time. It's a it's basically the same thing as the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, except he's a, a historian. Mm-hmm. And so when he talks about it, he knows about the context. Uh, whereas the H.P. Lovecraft literary guys, they just like are actors, right? They make movies, they uh, show up in movies and make scripts and try and sell them and it doesn't work. <laughs> but he knows what, what's going on. So when he's talking about what's happening, you can see all oh, the context here. But what's so cool is you can see the underlying themes like his his dad died when he was three years old in an insane asylum. His mom um, dies in the same same insane asylum as his dad. His grandfather was super rich, and then he lost all the money while he was a kid. And he grew up going down, down, down in Mm -hmm. money. Had no skills, didn't graduate high school, didn't go to university. Only thing he can do is write. Beautiful poetry. He had a like a some sort of um, cr- nervous attack 
that prevented him from finishing school. We don't know mm-hmm. what it was. But in his fiction, what you see over and over again is these characters who are somehow traumatized. And the overriding theme is of forget the past, don't investigate, hide. And when characters uncover what actually happened, other characters want to bury it. Mm-hmm. It's because he knows ultimately deep down something is I'm being lied to something I'm saying here, something I believe is not real. And so he has lots of really good takes. He's read very widely. He's, he wrote like science articles on astronomy for the newspapers all over the United States. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. He, he wrote a uh, co he co-wrote and wrote a whole bunch of Harry Houdini skepticism papers and uh, stories under Harry Houdini's byline. Right. Mm. He's super smart. Oh, yeah, I heard about that. Huge blind spot, which is he thinks race is real. And most people still do. I was talking to somebody the other day, thinks race is a real thing. There's no science that shows race is real. There's skin color. There's Mm. phenotypes. There's genes. All that stuff didn't exist. Not Not for the people back then. And right. he's surrounded by the most racist government and the most racist people. And he has lots of feelings of hate because other people who shouldn't be, he thinks, as high as they are, are higher than him. Of course. But he works it out in a very intellectual way. And so it comes across as kind of being like a raging racist. It's not raging. It's like, it's pain. That's the way. Uh, that's the way to understand it the best, I think. Otherwise, you're you're overstating because he literally, if 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 you wrote to him and he was of the wrong, you were of the wrong race, or you were gay or anything like that. He was super polite to you and very helpful and super nice. And we have all his like not all but hundreds of thousands of letters. Mm-hmm. And you can see it. The pattern is over, over, over again. And he's like super generous with his time with all these people who, you know, his wife was Jewish. She yeah, was his and she pursued him, chased him down and said, we should get married. And he's like, I, I thought, and it's fat. It's fascinating. And, and, and like he thought FDR was terrific, which you, you think, Oh, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But he also was in, he's insane. He thought, he thought the United States uh, should be part of the British Empire and that the king should still be ruling the United States. Nobody thought that. Right? See, that's <laughs> the nostalgia goggles. <laughs> it is. He that's, is like an extreme, that's like an extreme version of it. <laughs> Absolutely. He, he, he thought of himself as a gentleman. And uh, it's a weird thing. So call him a raging racist is to sort of misunderstand by raging. What you mean is very, and I agree he was, but it wasn't in a unthinking way. It was in a very, like, I'm trying to work this out. Um, and he thought about it a lot and he, he's a human being. So he has low points, but it wasn't like going around banning people from buses. He's just a guy living in a society who had no power. Only power he has is the ability to write poems and, and write sh- short stories and a couple of novels. That's uh, getting all upset about him when he's been dead for since 1936. 
<laughs> seems oh, 37. Oh. Seems like a kind of a mistake. Well, th- there is more I could say about that, but I actually I do need to get going. Have, it's like it's actually 11 o'clock here, and I have to be up at, by like 6:30. <laughs> get up, go to sleep. <laughs> um, but obviously, I had fun talking to you because we were we'd been doing it for about three hours. So, <laughs> three and a half. Yeah. Um. All right. Well. Um. Well, I hope you. <laughs> I hope you have a good night and. Um, uh, let's let's try to let's try to let's See you try to record that. again sometime. Yeah, when you've got time, uh, look at the schedule or find some hole in the schedule that you can you can work, and we'll happy happy to talk to you again. Well, thanks, man. You're very welcome. Um, all right, and uh, I've been recording this. I haven't stopped recording yet, but you can do uh, what you want with it. Anything. You want to do with anything? You're welcome to it. <laughs> um, but you've been recording too, right? I think this is still recording. Let me look. Okay. I I did stop it after the formal thing for the edit. Okay. But, yeah. All right. Well, if if if, uh, if I have anything that I recorded that that you want, just let me know. I think I I think the first thing's good, and the, uh, most of this material is not uh, going to be. Yeah, it's just us talking. Um, yeah. <laughs> because it's not co- it's not coherent enough i think <laughs> well and, and honestly well we got like an hour and a half of uh, one show and another <laughs> well maybe another two and a half hours maybe, of another show that maybe, doesn't have a title oh maybe i can maybe i can put that one out then anything you like <laughs> uh, nothing's exclusive except right. the stuff that is exclusive because i asked for permission to do it on the one thing but that that's all that's that's neither here nor there in this case <laughs> all right well well have have a good night and i'll talk to you, you again too. soon good night see you on twitter